Let me say officially, Eli, welcome to podcast. Great to have you. Appreciate it. And congrats on your seed round. Three million dollars raised a month ago? Almost three million, yeah. 2.8 to be exact. Yeah. Yeah. Thank Very you. exciting. Is this the first time you raised capital for a company? Um, well, well, second time with Right Farm. Uh-huh. Um, so we had a pre-seed round. Yeah. Um, and then we had the seed round. Excellent. Uh, Amazing. So right, your your company, Right Farm, which we're gonna, so excited to talk to you about it today, um, is in the intersection of technology, data, and agriculture. Um, before we unpack the problem, the product, and how you got here, I was thinking, like, how do I want to start the session today? And I was, it's been a topic that my friends and I, especially those of us who grew up in Dubai or worked in Dubai for the last 15 years, it's become a trending topic. Dubai is essentially a desert. And we're very grateful to be here, you know, the job, the career, the fun life and all that. But it seems to be a common theme for all of us who have been working here for the last 15 years is how far we are from nature and the need to kind of recreate this relationship and connection with fresh produce, with plants, with nature to be around us. You go back to Jordan, you grab a lemon from a tree, you eat it fresh, you feel like it's a delicacy almost, right? And then, you know, you have a dog and that, for example, the relationship with the animal is nurtured, friends and family, but we discarded being close to plants and, uh, and nature and it's become a theme. Everybody wants to buy a farm in Portugal or Greece nowadays. Yeah. So to what extent do you, as like a founder of an agri-tech company, relate to this need of a connection and relationship with plants and proximity to nature and to what extent has your startup affected that perception? Sure. Um, look, great, uh, great first question. Um, as a landscape here in, in the UAE, um, you know, and I'm sure you've experienced this, right? A tomato doesn't really taste like a tomato, right? Versus in, in Jordan or in uh, other countries. Um, and that's, that's due to um, supply chains, uh, where you're importing from, who that farm is, where do they get their seeds from, uh, are they adhering to international standards, regulations, etc. Um, I felt that uh, sort of uh, need to connect, and, and I try to do that every time I travel, right? Uh, especially in Lebanon, uh, I try to make sure I go to the mountains or or whatever, right? Um, look, th- there there are um, a lot of things that are being done right now. Um, mostly by by government uh, and government funding um, to sort of address these issues. Um, if you look at uh, ADQ's portfolio company, Silal, for example, uh, they recent recently invested in uh, in enabling um, a number of farms, uh, tech-wise, right? Whether it's uh, crop ir- uh, crop monitoring, irrigation uh, mm-hmm. systems, greenhouses, etc. Um, it, it's you know th- this is something that's going to be worked on for a long time. Yeah, um, and and uh, specifically when it comes to uh, local produce, I mean we we import ninety percent of our produce here. Mm. So um, yeah, it's going to take a while, uh, and it starts with the government, and that's what's happening. Right? Yeah, um, and and you're sort of working towards that uh, net zero target. You're working towards sustainability um, with with these um, agri practices. So. Um, yeah, it, it's funny that we piloted in the UAE, but uh, well, we're here, so we have to pilot uh, here. Um, but yeah, um, I, I mean, regionally, uh, uh, again, uh, also, if you want to touch on, on things like food security, there's a, there's a big misconception when it comes to uh, discussions on food security and local production, right? That's, that's a part of it. 
but that's not the entire story. Yeah. Right. Um, the pandemic showed us that if you don't have uh, proper control over your supply chain, um, and, and and global supply chains in general are going to break when yeah. when something like this happens. So, uh, I think securing your network and, and, and your 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 supply chain across uh, the region and the world. Mm-hmm. Um, is super key uh, for for food security as well. So that's something we're trying to work on at at Right Farm. So it's not only about local produce, although that's a a chunk of it. Right. So it's if I remember correctly, I think I I listened to a few of your last podcasts and your Radio 1, I think it's uh, the station that you went on? Uh, Uh, Dubai 1. Dubai 1. Yeah. Uh, The two problems that I remember you mentioned you're trying to solve with Right Farm was, uh, you know, establishing consistency in the supply chain and sort of, what consumers expect in terms of food quality and, and, and managing the logistics and the demand and supply aspect of things. And the second one is uh, to increase the fresh produce locally as opposed to having importing 90-95% as you're saying, right? Yeah. So how, how does Right Farm, maybe you can tell us a little bit about the product and the problem and, and how you guys do it. Sure. Um, when, when we started, we had um, two paths for, for Right Farm. Um, and it could have went uh, either way. Uh, but then with, with the field work that we did and the research that we did, um, we, we decided to go the way we did. Yeah. Um, look, v- very, very simply, um, there is a problem statement on the demand side yeah. on our buyers. Um, and our buyers are uh, very specific. They're anyone that ha- that's operating a commercial kitchen. So mm-hmm. it could be a restaurant, cloud kitchen, hotel, um, catering company, etc. And um, there's, a, th- there's a very clear problem statement there, right? When it comes to them procuring uh, their fresh produce. One, um, they have product spec requirements that they don't get consistently and reliably um, that they wish they could. Mm-hmm. Second is delivery SLA. So they want to be able to place an order as late as possible and have you deliver as soon as possible. Mm-hmm. Third is access to financing. Yeah. And this is sort of the micro lending uh, fintech play that, that Right Farm is, is, uh, is working on. Um, so very clear problem statements across the entire segment. Doesn't matter if you're a mom and pop shop. Doesn't matter if you're a Ketopi. Right? Yeah, you, you face those same challenges. Um, so w- we ran with that and we said, hey, um, clear problem that we can address. Uh, how do we address it with with the, with the business model that we uh, came up with? Right. And it's no I mean, this is not something uh, we've invented. Um, no, it's tried and tested because these challenges are global challenges. Mm-hmm. Right. In Colombia, these challenges exist yeah. in Africa and in Kenya um, in Indonesia and in India in Europe, um, etc. So <coughs> the, the interesting part about, about working in this space is we're combining two things that are very ripe for disruption, right? One is supply chain. So inherently, supply chains are uh, inefficient and messy, right? Um, and two is agriculture. Agriculture has been there for uh, since the beginning of time, sure. right? Or since... Uh, Early civilizations. Um, um, yeah. Uh, you know, post-hunter-gatherer societies, yeah. right? Um, and, and so there hasn't been much um, innovation in this space. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and now uh, things are, are, are becoming super attractive for, uh, for people coming in and sort of disrupting and working on uh, enabling uh, agriculture via technology, etc. So once you combine those two together, you have a host of, uh, of issues and, and challenges that you can um, a- address. Um, and, and that's what we're doing at Right Farm. Um, essentially, what we do is um, connect farms to our demand network, right? Yeah. So we procure from farms, whether local, regional, or global farms, and we sell to food service businesses. Right. 
Um, that's it in simple terms, right? Yeah. But, uh, but you optimize operationally, it, right? Yeah, exactly. So uh, tech comes in, uh, operational excellence comes in, um, and, and, and you try to optimize as much as you can. That plays into um, optimizing on, on uh, from a demand perspective, optimizing from a supply perspective, and then optimizing your unit economics um, as a result. So ultimately, if I'm a restaurant, for example, in Dubai, what I get by using Rightform is if my customers are expecting a certain quality of mangoes or avocado, whatever it might be, they're going to get that consistently and they're not going to have a problem with like, you know, the good mango is not here yet because that takes time to ship from the right place. Um, and it's, uh, I guess, the sustainability aspect is, is a clear part of your mission as well. Like yeah. Doing so so yeah. before you, Yazan, uh, the, the, the chef is our first stakeholder. Okay. Um, and then the, the business manager, be it a procurement manager or whoever places an order mm-hmm. for the restaurant is our second stakeholder. Right. Yeah. So uh, first you need to please the chef. Because the chef knows what the customers want as well, right? Yeah, not only that. The chef is buying uh, fresh produce for a specific use case, mm. right? Uh, I'm a poke place. I'm buying mango because I want to make a poke bowl with mangoes in it, right? I'm an Indian restaurant. I'm buying mango for a lassi. Uh, wow, right? different use cases. So different use case means different type of mango. Um, so it's not only about quality. Um, <coughs> Again, this is this is sort of a misconception um, be, because whenever I talk about right farm, they say, "Oh, so you 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 give quality uh, fresh produce, right?" No, no, it's not. No, an Indian restaurant uh, uh, ordering tomatoes is not looking for quality tomato. He's looking for a tomato for his curry use case, which has a which certain flavor, maybe exactly. Yeah. and it could be a uh, bad quality, not bad quality, but it could be a subpar quality tomato. Yeah, uh, that's a certain size certain level of rightness that's perfect for their use case. Right, yeah, right? that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, so yeah. It's, it's, a, um, it's, it's, it's interesting because, you know, it, it, it's easy to say, you know, I, I work with fresh produce because your, your, your um, sort of idea of fresh produce is you going to the supermarket, going to the rack of bananas and buying a few bananas, yeah. right? Uh, but what you don't realize is that if you're operating a commercial kitchen, not, no banana is the same. Yeah, right. yeah. Um, I might use this banana for this dish, but I might use a totally different banana for another dish. Right. Um, that's and a very. And that's where the tricky operational part comes in, right? Yeah, but that's a very bespoke service. Like if I'm a chef and I can, through Right Farm, um, mix and match the ingredients that are available with what I know I need to offer, and then of course everything else, as you mentioned, service level agreements on deliveries and everything else. Um, that's an interesting way to holistically capture the problem. I think you're trying to do, uh, and, and and I guess while you're at it, since you are solving the problem for these stakeholders, you might as well understand all the other other pain points they have, so that you can tackle them while you're at it, because you have that kind of vantage point that allows you to tackle all those things together. Absolutely. So ultimately, we want to make it as uh, seamless as and as thoughtless mm-hmm. um, and super easy for a chef or a, a business manager to order fresh produce for their kitchen. Right? Listen, I love the problem. The, I love the product. I mean, I haven't yet experienced it because I'm a consumer. I'm not a business. But I like the idea that if I was to have a restaurant or a food outlet, you know, that part of my business is solved or mostly solved using Right Farm. But how did you, you know, how did you come up with the idea? I guess... Yes, and sorry, just on ahead. that point. No, no, please. That's you as a restaurant owner, right? Right. Can you imagine, put yourself in the chef's shoes. The chef's core job is to cook. Right? Now he can just cook. He doesn't want to have to worry about, am I going to receive that uh, mango that I need today or am I going to get a, uh, you know, a different type of mango that I'm not going to be able to use? 
right? Yeah. Um, and the chef is involved in that ordering process, right? So you need to make it as, I wouldn't say enjoyable, but as easy and as get it out of the way quickly so they can as do you can, job. so, so they can they do can their focus job. on their core work. Yeah, that's amazing. I mean, it's, it's, it's great to think that you know, a chef can now do what a chef needs to do and the customer gets his food, the restaurant owner is happy, you guys make some money as well, everybody wins. So it's a great uh, win-win situation. I always wonder. So I st- I'm a, you know, I've started my second company. My first tech company was in New York and I have a bunch of friends and a lot of them are guests on the show. On what, how does, how do we, what makes us get to work and tackle a problem as a, an entrepreneur and start a company which takes a lot of dedication? Different answers, right? Some people are finding a big commercial opportunity, a big problem that needs to be solved. It doesn't matter in which industry it is. It could be in toilets, it could be in garbage, waste management, whatever it is. There's money to be made, the big problem to solve, let's go ahead and do it. Others are more interested in the impact and the problem they solve, even if it might be more painful and harder to tackle. Uh, in many cases, it, it might be a mix of both those things, and actually, most of, most often, more often than not, it is a mix of those things. For you, Right Farm, you were at Kareem, I think, before Right Farm, I think, or um, no? Uh, b- before that, I was working. Um, I was raising money for uh, for an agtech uh, vertical farming project. Agtech. 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 Yeah, yeah, same space. Agri-tech. Agri-tech. Vertical farming. Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, that didn't work out. Okay. Uh, not much private sector interest at the time. Um, it's nice to see now Red Sea Farms getting some funding. Uh, I think I saw something about content creators. You had you spent eight months working for a company that pay, that gives cash back. Yes, Circus. Okay, so that's then a different one. That's what I jumped to after Kareem. Yeah. Oh, that you jumped after Kareem. And then after that, you went to the first Agtech company? Uh, well, I was raising money for the, for that project. So okay. pandemic hit, Yeah. Uh, and I decided to do two things. Um, one was an e-commerce business, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> subscription uh, model uh, for prescription contact lenses. Okay, that's uh, cool. And that's, yeah. Uh, so again, finding a pain point on demand. Yeah. And, you know, running with it, right? So, so that's, so obviously, no... I think this is. It makes sense to go for a problem and start a company when there is a pain point to solve. Because uh, you know, at the end of the day, you want to make a company that solves the problem. Eventually, makes money, gets sold out, whatever, gets exits. To what extent is the problem itself agriculture? And was that a pain point that not only offers a commercial opportunity to start a company that solves it, but a problem that you are passionate about personally? Yeah. yeah. Uh, I wasn't passionate about the problem because I didn't know. I didn't know about the problem. Right. right? Until I started working on Right Farm. Um, what I was passionate about is is the space. Okay. Um, so starting a company. Uh, no, uh, agriculture. Oh. I, I've always been. Um, I, I mean, at least not always been. Um, ever since Ke- I joined Kareem, mm-hmm. um, I, I knew that you know I'm I'm gonna go uh, with with this path, right? Um, and what I tried to do after Kareem, because I joined Kareem, we were I think in 14 uh, countries uh, in the region. Um, and it was well beyond a startup, I think, right? Uh, super uh, growth phase uh, at the time. Uh, so I wouldn't label it as such. And so what I tried to do when leaving Kareem was join an earlier stage um, startup. And eventually I got to a point where I can uh, build. Uh, but would you own. say that when you joined Kareem, did you join Kareem and realize like these guys did something amazing, incredible, you were inspired? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, Look, I've uh, I've interacted with uh, Mudassir, um, and I think uh, he's 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 a special person, right? Um, you don't get uh, too many Mudassirs, uh, you know, during your your lifetime. I think a lot um, of people say that, yeah. Yeah. 
So uh, he's inspiring. Um, the way they ran uh, Karim, at least on, on my watch, um, was, was, was very inspiring. Everyone felt like they were an owner. Everyone felt like they were doing something that, uh, again, going back to the impact yeah. uh, uh, situation. So, uh, yeah, I, I owe my experience at Karim to where I am today, no doubt about it. Interesting. Yeah. And so you go to Karim. Uh, at that point, you're just like, I guess, you know, growing through your career. Then you realize, all right, starting a company is, I'm inspired to start a company because Karim was that success story. And then... At the same time, you were passionate about solving a problem in agriculture. Yeah, yeah. let me tell you where my passion comes from. Uh, how did you get into agriculture specifically? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, I'm from a, um, a village in the mountains in Lebanon, right? And um, uh, I, I guess similar to a lot of Lebanese people uh, that are expats, um, summers uh, during uh, when we were in school, we would uh, take the next flight uh, after the, the final day of school yeah. uh, to Lebanon. Um, and, and so I interacted a lot with my uh, grandparents um, uh, at the time. Um, and they used to, um, I, w- I wouldn't say farm, but plant um, whatever, fruits, vegetables, etc. Uh, in their backyard. Um, and I don't know what it is, again, going back to that point on, on feeling like you're in nature uh, and longing for that. So uh, I found it um, very... Uh, Meditational? Is that a word? Meditative. Meditative. Okay, thank you. (laughs) Um, I I found it very meditative to uh, to sit in the garden, water the water the trees and the plants, uh, etc. And I'm just a kid, right? Uh, But it was something I I really enjoyed doing, Um, and so it it stuck with me, right? So uh, I've I've always uh, had in the back of my mind uh, that you know I'd love to one day do something in, uh, in, in that space. Um, and we tried with the vertical farming project. Um, we tried to raise money, we didn't. And uh, luckily, you know, things, things sort of have their way of working out sometimes. Yeah. So uh, b- because I was uh, trying to get that money for, uh, for the farming project, I, uh, yeah. I got in touch with the ADQ uh, studio team and we launched Right Farm. That's amazing. Right, so for anybody that's learning for the first time about what vertical farming is, and yeah. perhaps you can tell us a little bit about not just vertical farming, but what is being done in general in the UAE aside of vertical farming, some of the trends um, or other solutions that are being adopted in order to create a sustainable uh, environment in the UAE to create fresh produce. So I'm actually an ignorant myself on the topic, so school me <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> so you have different types of farming. One, your traditional soil, sun-based farming. Um, and then... You get into uh, still traditional, so soil-based, but greenhouse, mm. uh, which you're probably very familiar with. Yeah, uh, you see them everywhere, especially in Lebanon and Jordan. Yes, um, and then uh, enter hydroponics, right? Uh, and you have may have heard uh, about hydroponics back in the day for uh, some types of plants, uh, but you can also grow fruits and vegetables uh, hydroponically, right? Um, so hydroponics is essentially replacing the soil with a water medium, right? So no soil, instead water. Now what happens with hydroponics is that you start, because the soil is rich in nutrients, water is not, you start um, modifying that water Mm -hmm. or adding nutrients to that water. Right. right? So hydroponics could be grown in a greenhouse, could be be grown vertically, could be grown uh, in a container, etc. So hydroponics is is one way to do things. So think of your pure pure harvest, for example. Mm -hmm. So they do hydroponic greenhouse farming 
Okay. Right. So sunlight dependent. However, uh, the medium is water, not soil. Right. Um, and then you have two types of indoor farming. Uh, indoor is completely blacked out. You're using LEDs, replacing sunlight with LEDs. Um, still hydroponic, but uh, with the addition of, of that uh, light factor that's, uh, yeah. that's not natural. Um, that could be uh, grown in a container. Um, and, and the use case for that uh, initially was, um, you know, in New York where you, where you lived, for example, there's not much space to, uh, to farm, right? So what they used to do was put these containers uh, on the rooftops of buildings and sort of service that block or, oh. or, or, or that area. Right, right? okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but there are a lot of um, issues when it comes to c- container farming. So uh, then you have warehouse vertical farming. So mm. bigger space, uh, more operational, uh, right? Less risk of um, uh, infection from uh, from external, uh, you know, insects or whatever the case may be. Um, because with a container, you have one one way in, one way out. Yeah. Right. So uh, whenever you open that container, you have a risk of contamination, etc. With a warehouse, no, you can plan it uh, pretty pretty well. So, yeah, that's the that that's the big thing. Nice. Right now, right? Warehouse vertical farming. So uh, the likes of uh, Badia Farms, Modar Farms, okay. Oasis uh, Greens. And is the quality of the uh, vegetables and the fruits uh, as good as what you would expect from a natural process? Or do you compromise a little bit in order to create that environment um, for production? My, my opinion, uh, and I can explain my logic. Um, I hope no one in organic farming or soil-based farming um, hates me for that. But I think... Um, the best quality you can get is a hydroponically um, and indoor grown uh, fruit or vegetable. Wow. The reason being very simple. Um, you're artificially optimizing the natural environment that is um, best optimized for that plant to grow to its fullest potential. Right? Wow. And I'll explain how that is. Hydroponically, you're delivering nutrients straight to the roots of the plant. Mm. So the plant does not spend any energy on it growing its roots and finding the nutrients it needs versus soil-based farming, right? So essentially, a lot of that energy, that's why you find a lot of hydroponically grown plants, or all of them, have short roots. uh, They have evolved. Like, they evolved to not need to be... uh, That's crazy. Yeah, I I wouldn't call it evolution. Uh, I would just say that there is no need... For 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 that energy spend on on yeah. expanding. I mean, the same roots. way we lost our tails as human beings. Yeah. I mean, if to the extent that we had tails, I don't know. We can debate evolution all sure. day. But let's but say we did. Uh, yeah. Uh, well, I mean, yeah. we don't. We don't. We have found no use case. Well, we have a uh, now, right? Yeah. I mean, it, it, exactly. So the idea is that you lose the things that you don't need, uh, and so it's interesting that you say that plants have certain characteristics that they require to absorb nutrients and so on, the moment you put them in an environment where these things are abundantly provided to them... There's no need for it to yeah. spend energy on If it. you want to go really psychedelic, the entire body of a human being is not needed. Yani the energy, the soul, the spirit, the for those who, you know, taking a little bit of a tangent outside of the topic, uh, a lot of the kind of new age woo-woo types will tell you the body is just there because you need to actually move around and, and walk yourself from point A to point B, but... Anyway, we might be taking a really big tangent No, here. no, let's go, let's go. <laughs> no, I, don't no, I don't know much about it. I just know that the <laughs> okay. entire kind of like um, the things that you have as uh, fingers, as hands, as even your body are only there because you actually need it to survive and to cope. And so clearly with plants, it looks like it's the same thing. And that's fascinating. I would not think that the plants would lose certain physical characteristics the moment they can trust that the environment that you're putting them in will be uh, continuously the same enough for them to become 
efficient in yeah. their in their physical space. That's yeah. actually fascinating. Yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. It's very interesting. Yeah. So th- that's one angle, mm. uh, and then the other angle is you're controlling uh, the light, right? Um, so you know exactly what a strawberry needs yeah. in terms of green light, red light ratio for it to be uh, growing optimally, yeah. right? So you're just replacing that sunlight and that um, extra sort of noise that's coming from sunlight and then yeah. the plant has to sort of figure its way to, to absorb the green and the red yeah. by, by doing it artificially with LEDs. Yeah. Right? Now, some people are going to tell you, man, this is artificial. It's uh, not organic. La, la, la. Uh, well, it uh, is organic, actually. Yeah. In some con- in some countries, I forget the mix because it's 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 um, it's Europe is considers this organic. U.S. and here they don't. I'm not sure which which way it is, um, but it's debatable. Um, to me, this is better than organic. The, what's the definition of? Is there like a universal definition for organic that is not debatable? That is objectively the definition because yeah. Uh, so organic is uh, essentially growing naturally. Without the use of pesticides, uh, preservatives, mm. um, etc. So the reason why Europe or the U.S. would might have its uh, disagreement on the definition of this particular process, if if it's organic or not, would be because uh, they are doing something that is not considered organic. Honestly, I have no idea. Okay, um, I have no clue. But yeah. uh, but it's it's uh, again it's it's better than organic. Right. Since, since, you're, since you're talking about but like uh, uh, look I'm going to apologize to all the orga- organic farms out there um, uh, organic farming is a very sustainable and, and very healthy approach to farming um, that, that there's no debate there uh, this is just a personal opinion Yeah. Uh, again think I, I was heavily invested in, in sort of this uh, uh, this business model so so I'm, um, uh, you, you can have some say bias. I'm a bit biased as well but, um, but that's but interesting yeah. I was what I would recommend Yazan yeah. because you find this interesting yeah uh, well, now is not the season, but next winter, yeah. uh, if you're here, please visit um, uh, Emirates Biofarm. I okay. can't believe I forgot. Uh, yeah. yeah. Glitch. Uh, Emirates Biofarm. Uh, Yazan. Uh, it's run by a guy called Yazan. Oh, is that right? Family Jordanian? Business. Uh, okay. Syrian, I Syrian, think. Syrian, yeah, yeah. Fair enough. Um, super nice guy. Amazing stuff that they're doing there. They've been there for the longest time. It's a family business. Started with his dad. Um, yeah. Um, very very cool place. You can do a tour of the farm. You can have lunch there. I'll tell you something. When I uh, and I mean I don't have much experience uh, tasting and and comparing fruits and vegetables that are grown in indoor uh, compared to organic. Um, but like uh, it's a big, especially in the cannabis industry, in, indoor grown marijuana is superior to not indoor grown marijuana. Um, if you go to Amsterdam and you try some of the indoor marijuana there and, and you compare it to regular, um, you can already tell how strong, much stronger it is, how much more potent it is. And, and cannabis industry is becoming more commercial and legalized around the world. So, yeah, I would not, uh, I kind of believe how uh, this environment that that's is. A, that's yeah. an interesting take on. Yeah. Uh, okay. So, uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, I know, I mean, like. Uh, no, no, uh, that's, that's essentially the difference, right? Right. You're, you're optimizing that environment for yeah. that plant to grow at its. Uh, to its full potential. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. it. Absolutely. What I like about this topic is, you know, it's amazing how you have a lot of controversies and a lot of uh, debate, a lot of controversies and debates around certain topics in the food and health and nutrition theme, right? So veganism versus, or let's say vegans versus carnivores. I'm a big carnivore. I love, I feel better when I eat meat and chicken and I don't eat, uh, you know, Maybe that's just subjective, but you know, parking this topic aside, you might come back to it. Clearly, it seems there's another... I was vegan for three years. 
and you're back to being a carnivore yeah. or like a omnivore i guess yeah. you eat both yeah okay so so we'll come back to that for sure because because uh, that's uh, but what i love about this uh, kind of the, the fact that in the food and the health and nutrition space there are a lot of sensitive controversies that they not that that you almost had to say like I apologize for everybody who's in the organic farming. Yeah. What are there, what are some of the other fads or some of the other debates that seem to be divisive in the world of agriculture and food? So one is this thing about organic versus indoor. Uh, do you find that there's another topic that people seem to be divided on? Um, not necessarily divided, but at least a problem in the region here um, that I've witnessed in Egypt. Mm. Um, is that y- you have um, sort of international uh, regulation around um, seed procurement and the way you uh, utilize those seeds, mm-hmm. right? So, um, and, and that, that's why you get crappy fruits and vegetables, right? Or that's uh, one of the reasons why. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, wh- when you procure seeds, you have a, uh, a number of seeds that you're allowed to um, uh, plant in a, in a given area, mm-hmm. right? Now, what happens usually in, in, in our part <coughs> of the world is um, those seeds are not uh, used for that particular area, but, uh, you know, plants are cloned, um, etc. Yeah, so you take a branch or, or uh, for, forgive me, I have no idea that, that technically how they do it, but essentially they, they sort of multiply those seeds um, uh, to produce more, uh, right? Right. Um, and, and that sort of takes away from the nutrients in the plant, that sort of takes away from the taste, um, etc. Um, the problem with that is you can't export that production, right? So you end up dumping it in the local market. And that's something that people in Egypt are, are, are complaining about and are, uh, and are gaining more knowledge about, right? So When you say dumping it, you mean like actually throwing it away to... No, to no, no, sorry. Pl- so so yeah. offloading it into the market. Okay. So selling it locally. Yeah. Uh, for whatever reason, there's no oversight. I have no clue. It's like um, the equivalent of but a you GM. can't export it. Right. It's equivalent of like G- genetically modified uh, organisms, like where you give a chicken an, an injection and she becomes ten, it, it becomes ten times its size. So this is equivalent for seeds. Let's say a way to increase yield at a low cost. Sure, not as not as technical as that. Yeah, but, uh, but yeah, same same yeah. kind of objective. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The other thing that. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm so far away from the world of agriculture and food that I'm learning things, stories. Earlier, before you showed up, I was talking to Georgia, my fiance, um, about like, what would you ask Eli? Like, I gave her a bit of introduction about you, right? And she told me something about what happens in Greece that blew my mind. Okay. Which is, and I'd love to get your opinion on it in terms of the pricing of local produce versus um, export, uh, import, right? Um, so she said in Greece, uh, I think if I'm not mistaken, she's saying that... Um, Local produce is more expensive because the local producers throw away, like they actually throw away part of their yield in order to create a price, uh, to increase the price of the product, basically. Uh, And I might be wrong here. Did you say the price? interesting. I never knew that about Greece, uh, and I'm a bit surprised. Bring the mic closer, sorry. Sorry. Uh, I'm a bit surprised. Yeah. Um, Well, local produce here is more expensive than imports. So Here's, but it's, not, it's, not, it's supposed to be the other way around. Import should be more expensive uh, usually. Logically, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, look, uh, excuse me. No, no, go ahead, sorry. Um, that's, that's a... Uh, mainly that's a regulatory issue. Uh-huh. Um, and, th- and that's not on, uh, on me, you, Right Farm, to, uh, to, to really um, do something about. 
right? It, uh, it, it should start from the top. Um, so it's mainly regulation. Can you elaborate? Are you able to? Or um, sure, very very simply. Um, if you wanna, if you wanna encourage local farming, uh, like they do in Europe, for example, that's why I'm I'm very surprised about Greece. Um, so you put a big tax on uh, on imported produce. Yeah, and I think they do that. I think they, I think despite the fact that they do that, I think some of the local farmers, if I'm not mistaken, again I might be paraphrasing here because she said mentioned to me. I think despite the taxes, which make the... Um, Technically, the imported produce more expensive. Yeah, I think they still need to increase the price somehow by dumping the product, by actually getting rid of it. Uh, th- that's crazy. Yeah. That's crazy. I can talk to you about wastage all all day. Well, go for it. With with examples and... Yeah, yeah, please. I mean, isn't it part of your mission as well, like waste yes. management? So, so, so please, go ahead. Uh, so we have a big sustainability angle, and that's the beauty about uh, Right Farm's model. Um, we... <coughs> Essentially, when uh, when the produce leaves the farm, right farm starts touching the produce, right? Um, and so you have uh, a lot of ways that you can tackle sustainability along that uh, value chain. Mm-hmm. What we thought about doing, and I'll give you a nice story for this. Um, when we first started working on right farm, I went to visit a, a big farm here. Uh, and we were walking through the farm, and I saw a big pile of marrow, kusa, uh, chucked and, and you know it was m- July uh, peak summer midday uh, and it was just chucked there so I asked uh, the gentleman I was with you know, what's the deal with those marrows and he said uh, oh those are waste I said okay fine uh, and I was curious so I went over to, to that uh, pile of marrow and I saw nothing wrong with the marrow absolutely nothing uh, so I asked what, what's wrong with the marrow why are they being wasted he grabbed the marrow, a piece, uh, and he put it, you know, 10 centimeters away from my eye. And he said, look, if you look closely, the picker that was uh, ha- harvesting forgot to wear gloves. So his fingernails scratched the marrow and I can't sell it. So I said, you're wasting all this marrow, perfectly fine, perfectly nutritious, unless you really look at it, you're never going to see that small scratch from a fingernail. You're throwing this away. He said, yeah. So <clears throat> first first line of defense when it comes to food wastage for us is prevention. Mm. Okay. So we said, okay, no, you're not throwing this away. You're going to sell it to us at a fraction of the price. We can, we, we can actually make use of it. Exactly. And then here comes the use case, right? Hey, restaurant, uh, smoothie restaurant, right? Marrow smoothie doesn't go, it's not gonna work, but you know carrot. Let's yeah. say it's an imperfect carrot. Yeah. It looks weird. It looks like a tomato. Yeah. Right. Smoothie place doesn't care. His use case is chucking it in the blender and yes. doing a smoothie. Is it nutritious? Absolutely. Everything stands. It's just the shape is deformed. Right. Right. So you're gonna sell it to us at a fraction of the cost, and we're gonna sell it at a fraction of the price. So that's how you start. Um, and then you're going to end up with your supply chain, with your operation, you're going to end up wasting. The restaurant is going to end up wasting maybe by over forecasting their order and then having wasted at the end of the day that they can't store. Right. Um, so this is where we've partnered with um, two startups based out of the UAE um, to do something about our waste, our food waste and our uh, customer food waste. Right. If they're willing to do something about it. Yeah. Um, so essentially, we do two things. One, we collect um, uh, both our waste and our customer waste, 
uh, we send it off to one of the the startups we're working with, and they compost it, um, mm. and they give it back to farms as compost for for the soil. Nice. Um, the other one, which is pretty interesting, uh, probably first time you hear this, um, they take the waste, they uh, harvest black soldier flies and black sol- soldier fly larvae, and they transform that larvae into protein for livestock, and they sell it to livestock farms. All right, hold on, back up. What is a black soldier? Black black soldier, some type of fly. Okay, so if so, they apparently very nutritious and protein. Okay, so they take the food waste and they, and they sorry, start over. Yeah, yes, back up. Food waste. Yeah. Um, they turn it into creation of black soldier flies. Oh, they create the flies out of the food waste. Um, that doesn't make sense. Don't Joe, how how is it done technically? They feed on the waste. Okay, so so okay. So they have one black soldier fly feeding on the waste, uh, fornicating. <laughs> like red hot chili peppers, <laughs> right? Yeah. All right. So, so, so. <laughs> and then uh, larvae. Uh, what, what does larvae mean? Uh, eggs. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So they get a bunch of those flies that feed on this waste that then produce more flies. Reproduce. Reproduce. And then these flies themselves become what? So, so sorry. So, so the larvae mm. uh, that they produce, yeah. their eggs, gets transformed into protein for livestock. Wow. Yeah, yeah, it's that's crazy. an amazing way to repurpose uh, waste. Not, I'm not gonna say recycle, repurpose. I mean, yeah. So you take food waste, you get a bun- you get this black soldier fly that yeah. eats that waste, creates eggs. These yeah. eggs then become protein for agriculture, for livestock, for farms. livestock. So for livestock, actually, yeah, for yeah. animals. Wow, yeah. amazing. Yeah, yeah. And that's a startup in the UAE. Yeah, incredible. Uh, out of Masdar. Uh, we're actually attending their inauguration uh, end of the week with Her Excellency, the Minister of Climate Change and Environment. So this becomes like a what, like a, for them they're trying to uh, I mean uh, yeah so they're trying to replace what would otherwise be uh, unnatural food for livestock by giving them the food that they would be the best for their growth and for their for their life and for their quality and all of that basically yeah, right yeah, yeah. so it's it's like a protein shake right. Speaking of livestock, do you guys do any li- any meat products or just veg and fruits? No, and no. Uh, we're, we're focused on uh, fruits and veg for now. Okay. Uh, arguably the most difficult uh, product to handle uh-huh. operationally. Yeah. yeah. Uh, given the the number of SKUs and the shelf life. Yeah. Um, of course. And then and everything else after that is, is going to be a walk in the park compared to that. Right, well, speaking of meat uh, products, uh, you mentioned you used to be vegan and you are, you are no longer. Yes. So both as a consumer. Luckily for my wife. I'm no longer vegan. Yeah, I can imagine if you're a vegan and she's not, that's a tough uh, way to have a date night out yeah, anyway. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we're not I getting, had no problem we're with not getting any appet- We're not getting any appetizers <laughs> to share. Yeah. Um, no, but I mean, of course, not for you, but for her, I can imagine, right? Because mm. you can always, well, actually, if she's in, okay. I, mean, I think she felt bad yeah. for, for me yeah. because I wouldn't have options on the menu. Yeah. And that was it. Yeah, yeah fair enough. I guess she loves me a lot. You can't even have like the bad. eggplant with the cheese. They're from an Italian, like a Parmigiana Melanzana, whatever that is. The eggplant with the cheese is not even vegan, right? Because that's that your favorite. Uh, well, I, uh, I mean, that's one appetizer. option. Because I always think about like the, the, the huge difference between vegetarians and vegans. There's a huge difference. I mean, uh, any product that has any dairy product in it immediately puts you in, in a vegan uh, category. Yeah. No, but I'm, I'm, a, I'm actually somebody that. Um, so I can talk at length about my carnivore experience. Um, it started by seeing a Joe Rogan uh, episode. Yeah, yeah, the carnivore diet. Or the carnivore whatever. diet. Yeah, yeah. Then a friend of mine came over and told me like he was raving about it. He's like, just try it. 
Uh, also, he sent me a bunch of videos about how it's not as unhealthy as it might seem with the cholesterol and all that stuff. Yeah. Uh, so I looked it up. It turns out it's about triglycerides, which are the VLDLs. If that's low, then your other cholesterols can be high, and it doesn't mean that it's a problem as long as your sugar is low. So basically, there's this entire misconception. It's also one of those kind of divisive controversies in the world of health, whether eating a lot of meat and not eating a lot of fiber is bad or good for you. I'm one of the people that actually believes and has experienced firsthand when I was carnivore, when I went carnivore for about a short period of time. Did you just do a carnivore diet? I had some leafy greens. So I would have like spinach or even like celery or um, like rocket leaves. So I wasn't doing, and I was having coffee and alcohol, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. So it was definitely more like keto than it was carnivore. So yeah. a pure carnivore diet would be like meat just and water. Meat. Yeah. But I already experienced the benefits of not having sugar in my body, the crashing afterwards. Yeah. Testosterone was super high, which was great. It made me want to go to the gym more it made you want to get start, you know get to work more yeah i was my libido was higher you know everything that you would want to look for as, as a person not just as a man uh went well for me right yeah. lost weight got more muscle uh just felt much better Pri I, I, on a primal level i didn't get more aggressive but i felt more ambitious you know so so that's you know, very interesting. Psychologically, that's interesting, right? It is, right? And then and then I had to like really go through the health because I have like family history, my father, heart disease, all that stuff. And no, I, my cholesterol was high. Both the LDL and HDL was not like ridiculously high, but they were high. And usually in traditional medicine, they tell you like if your LDL is high, that's bad. If your HDL is low, that's good. So the HDL is supposed to be the high-density lipids, which are the fats you get from nuts and almonds. Yeah. So if, you, if, if that's high, it's okay. It's actually good. Yeah. If your LDL is high, that's bad. That's like all the stuff that gets, gives you a heart attack. Yeah. But it turns out for people who are pro-carnivore diet is that your LDL can still be high and your HDL can be high. But as long as your VLDL, which is your triglycerides, is not high, then you're okay as long as your sugar is low. So basically it's like it comes down to how high your blood sugar is and also other aspects of your health and fitness, right? So it's not just down to these four or five metrics. Yeah. But basically, long story short, it's like you, it's it's wrong to, or at least the proponents of a carnivore diet will tell you, it's wrong to reduce health to just don't eat red meat, cholesterol. Like, it's not that simple, right? Yeah. Uh, you can have high LDL and HDL, but as long as your VLDL is low and your sugar blood is low, like on, on a fasting state, um, and you're feeling good and, and you have, you're building muscle and you're losing fat, then you can keep eating all the meat and the chicken you want. Yeah. But I'm curious to hear about what made you switch from being a vegan. Because a lot of people, when they try being vegan, they swear by it. Yeah. What's your story? Uh, it all started with YouTube. Uh, so I watched a, a lengthy speech by someone. I forget the name. Um, and logically, from, from the arguments they were giving, uh, it made sense uh, biologically. Um, it made sense ethically. Um, it just made sense overall, right? And we can get into the details if you want. Um, so I thought, let me try this out. And I did, and I felt good. Uh, so I continued. Was it Game Changers, the Netflix show? Uh, you know no, no, it wasn't a Netflix show. It was a, um, a, a speech. Okay. Yeah, yeah like yeah. A, a, an hour-long speech. Uh, an argument for, for being vegan, basically. Sure. Um, and it made sense. So I said... Okay, this makes sense. Let me let me try it. Um, and I did for three years. Um, my friends hated me. Uh, my uh, my wife uh, was very uncomfortable. Yeah. Um, 
but I was feeling good, so it didn't matter. As a vegan, yeah, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right uh, there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I can get some um, ice if you want from down. No, I'm good. I'm good. Thank you. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Besides the social sort of, um, I don't know if you can call it stigma, um, but besides the social sort of impact it had, uh, I was feeling great. Um, so both you you felt better ethically and you also felt better physically and mentally probably. Yeah. To be perfectly honest with you, I wasn't doing it for the ethical reason as much as I was doing it for the um, biological reason. Well, part of the argument of the YouTube video was was that you're gonna feel better, and so you did it for that basically. Um, yes. Overall, you will feel better, and overall, it makes sense because of your um, uh, biological, um, you know. I don't know what's the word, biological state as a human. Sure, right? sure, sure. Um, that can be f- because of your teeth. It could be because of your long intestine. That's, uh, that's only found in omnivores, not carnivores. Um, the way you digest meat versus the way you digest uh, mm-hmm. uh, greens. Um, so, yeah, it, it, it worked. Now, one thing I, I forgot, yeah. which, which they said in that speech, um, which now... Come to think of it, is not really a factor of veganism, but uh, at the time, I thought it was. Which was? Uh, vitamin B12. Right. Yeah. So, uh, vitamin B12 is found in soil, and so people used to get it even even if they were on a vegan diet because people didn't used to wash fruits and vegetables mm-hmm. back in the day, right? Um, now you you wash. Properly, so there there is no um, B12 in fruits and veg. Um, it is found in animals because animals graze, and they and eat so the plants they, whole. Yes, without washing with with the soil. Right, of course. Right. So, so, yeah, so they yeah, get yeah. B12 in their system. And oh, the uh, animals that graze. Sorry, not the yeah, animals that graze. eat other animals. Yeah. Sorry, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, <coughs> I went for a checkup three years after. Yeah, which is bad at my age. I think everyone should get a checkup once a year. Yeah, makes sense. Um, so I went and, and uh, they said, whoa, your B12 is super, super low, like dangerously low. So I said, okay, well, what do we do? Oh, you're going to get a shot in the butt and you're going to have to take pills. Yeah, I got a few of those as well. Yeah. So I said, okay. Um, and uh, I, I, I thought, shit, this guy in the speech said that this was going to happen, right? I should have listened and taken those B12 pills. Um, so, so then I, I, I thought, man, if this is going to make me take pills and, and uh, you know, get a shot in the butt every now and then, then uh, I might as well just, I might go, as back. Well just uh, go back. So you're an omnivore now? Uh, or are you like trying? Sorry, omnivore is... Uh, omnivore eats both. Okay, sorry, sorry. So, uh, so herbivore, yes. Uh, herbivore yes, I'm an omnivore now. Yeah, okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. perfect. Uh, yeah. But funny enough, because I just say that now, because um, my wife, who's a big... Uh, Carnivore, yeah, uh, raw meat and everything in between. Oh, uh, nice. Uh, she has B twelve deficiency. Yeah, severe. Yeah. So I don't think it's down to ve- whether you're vegan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so these things, see, it's so hard. The problem with all these, maybe I should go back to vegan as well. Yeah. <laughs> well, how how were you doing in terms of how you felt? Uh, I felt great. I was exercising two times a day as a vegan. Yeah. Uh, well, I wasn't an entrepreneur, so I, I could afford to exercise twice a day. No, but all the sugar and all the carbs you eat and all that didn't give you a crash? I was eating healthy. I was eating healthy. 
No, I mean, you can eat healthy and organic and, and all that, but... Uh, no, I mean, uh, so I... Uh, you were eating a low-carb low vegan diet, basically. I don't drink. Okay. Um, I, I don't eat sugar. Okay. Um, I, I don't do that stuff anyways. Yeah. So I mean, it's hard to avoid carbs. I dr I'm drinking. Yeah, today is an exception. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and thanks to your, your wife who's allowed this <laughs> to be. <laughs> She's um, going to be proud. Yeah. Um, and especially if she is a, if she is a carnivore... Uh, if she's a carnivore herself, we should definitely do a double date one time and go out because, like, we love to eat meat yeah, as well. Yeah, let's do it. Yeah, yeah, hundred yeah, yeah. percent. We know all the good. Um, what do they call that? Um, uh, that dish. Um, it's a French one. Raw meat, French. Oh, like the cup. Not sorry. Uh, the. What do they call it? Tartare. Tartare, tartar, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank yeah. you, Joe. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Fair enough. Fair enough. All right. Cool. So <laughs> we'll do that. Uh, my George is Greek, so clearly big on seafood yeah. and, and man, meats. Mediterranean diet. Um, that's best. supposed to be the healthiest. It is healthy. You know, you look at, for example, George's parents, like uh, their physique, their well-being. Yeah. Now, it's not just down to their diet because, uh, sure, they have a lot of olive oil. Um, you know, everything's fresh from yeah. their garden. Yeah. But also um, the Mediterranean lifestyle that's not in this big city, vertical buildings. Like, you know, they, you know, to speak about specifically about George's father, for example, uh, I think he's in his maybe late 60s, uh, if I'm not mistaken, and he looks young as fuck, and he looks like Russell Crowe. You know, he's a good-looking guy <laughs> in his age, and it turns out he has his vineyard. He goes and picks up the grapes yeah. in, in Greece in an island outside of Athens, and you know, he does everything A to Z in his age. They move. They move, right? And they're close to nature, and he grabs the grapes, and he tastes it, and yeah. he gives it to you like dusty grape. Like, I've never had dusty grapes like that. I should wash it. And he's like, no, no, you eat it like that, you know? So it's all this like... There's something about just keeping it natural uh, that is so priceless that, I, I mean, we are so, it's one of those things that I think we have discarded as, as, as I was starting earlier in the episode, as, yeah. as those of us who lived in Dubai, New York, whatever, we, we nurture human relations, maybe even animal relations, but we just totally discard being close to, you know, trees and plants and fresh yeah. produce. Yeah. And it, I think it affects your well-being, you know, you can yeah. live longer not just by eating that stuff, but just being around it. Yeah. And taking you feel care of that good. Plant. You feel good. You there's, feel there's there's something in th there's a connection that's uh yeah, that's, uh, yeah you can't uh, you can't really describe. Hundred percent. Um Go ahead. Uh, I was gonna say something um about uh never mind. Uh, I was gonna ask you if you had <coughs> by now, uh since you are operating at a I assume you like with, with Right Farm, you guys go to the product level, right? Like so I don't know the interface, but I would imagine like uh, the buyer of the products can browse through fruits and vegetables. So have you had any particular insights about specific fruits and specific vegetables that was profound or blew your mind? Like that uh, mo people like, like almost like interesting trivia or, or facts about some fruits or some vegetables based on the consumption behavior. It might be too early for you guys to even have gathered such insight, but I yeah. was wondering if you come across any interesting stories about... Did you know that mangoes or avocado <laughs> or something, you know, like <laughs> something of that sort? Um, <laughs> no, maybe maybe one thing comes to mind. Um, oh, actually, two things. Okay, uh, I'll, I'll tell you about my. Uh, so I went to Egypt last week. Mm -hmm. um, first time <coughs> in Egypt. Amazing place. Um, there's something in the air in Egypt. Um, you feel like you're in uh, in an ancient land. Yeah. Right. Just just uh, something in the air. It's amazing. I, I loved it. First I, I love Egypt. Yeah. Yeah. I, I loved it. Um, Despite the traffic. Uh, no traffic. Cairo. Uh, when's the last time you were there? 
like six years ago, seven years ago. Okay. Before the revolution and all that stuff, probably. No, no, not so before. Just right around the same time, yeah. So what Egypt's going through now, I haven't seen um, before in my travels or even here. Mm. Uh, there is so much infrastructure development. It's it's crazy. Everywhere you look, um, there's a highway being built. There's a bridge being built. Um, it's insane. Cool. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's crazy. So... <coughs> Just speaking on, on the traffic part. Yeah. So we were, we, this was a, a supply uh, visit, right? Yeah. So we, we wanted to, uh, our volumes now allow us to import. Um, and so we were uh, meeting with farms, big farm operators in Egypt yeah. uh, to secure some, sub, uh, some supply for some SKUs there. And uh, one of the people we were meeting wanted to take us out for uh, dinner. So we suggested that we go to uh, an area called uh, Al Hussein. Um, where there's a basically downtown Cairo, ancient Cairo. Uh, there's a mosque there, beautiful mosque, uh, built in, in in the year 1100 something. Yeah, right? uh, I forget. I'm I'm, I'm the worst at, at <laughs> the, this stuff. I li- I like these things if I'm there, but I don't go seeking them. Right. right. So I'm not a touristy type of person. But if there's a plan, yeah, I'll tag along and I'll find it fascinating. Right. Regardless, I should know the date when that mosque no was built. Uh, but anyways, we wanted to go there because um, we were told that there's a really great uh, barbecue uh, place there. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was like 6 o'clock, 6.30 at night, p.m., 6.30 p.m. Uh, and uh, the g- we were going in, 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 in that gentleman's car, and he was trying to convince us not to go there because it's going to take two hours to get there. Yeah. I don't know what happened, but um, w- we ended up deciding to go there, right? And we got there in 20 minutes. Uh-huh. Um, he was, the whole way, he was raging about how six months ago, this highway that we took to get there did not exist, right? Yeah. He had no clue, and he was super surprised. He's like, the last time I've been here, I was five years old, Yeah. and now I'm going to get my family here next weekend for That's this. crazy. Yeah. So th- that's on on the traffic side, um, on the inside. In, on the yeah, yeah. yeah. The interesting fruit that I discovered in Egypt. Okay. Um, Omani toot. Omani toot. Yeah, that's, that's what they call it. They, it's they're assuming. growing it in Egypt, but it's yeah, Omani yeah. toot. I, I doubt it's Omani. Okay, uh, okay, okay. Maybe it is. I don't know, but that's what they call it. What's so, what's right? so special about it? Um, it looks. You know, toot. Toot right? is berries, right? Uh, toot like, is like ras. Raspberry. Raspberry. Raspberry, yeah. There's blueberry as well, I think. There's the yeah, yeah, blueberry is the circle. Then there's the, 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 the one that's a compounded group of circles. That's yeah. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so it was that, but lengthy. So not like a cone or, or you know, like a ball. Oh, okay. With balls It usually looks it, like a like cone. Yeah, it usually looks like... It a looks like a, a, like, yeah, like a, small like cone. a lump. Right. right, yeah, 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 yeah. No, this was like a long sort of thing. Wow. And we picked it off the tree ate it and it's the sweetest uh, type of berry I think I ever tried. Fascinating. Green. Green by color. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, yeah. And sweet. I was like, what you the think hell is green this? is not ripe yet, but you're saying it was yeah, sweet. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's what I'm saying. Wow, it's crazy. Yeah. Omani toot in Egypt. Yeah. Just understanding, I think. Um, so understanding that a mango is not just a mango. Yeah, there are so many different types of mangoes, uh-huh. different specs of mangoes. Yeah, uh, and getting into those details, uh, potato, 
use case for frying is yeah. a special type of potato, right? Whereas what we do as a consumer, we just order potato from yeah. whoever platform, yeah. yeah, and we get a potato and we fry it. Right. Yeah, so you think there's a special type of potato for frying? Absolutely. It's not a thought. It, there is. Uh, and we went looking for that potato in Egypt. So for, for French fries, you go for the potato, that this particular potato in Egypt. Yeah. And then for a potato that would be it's baked. not only in Egypt, but we were looking for it in Egypt. And what? so what are the characteristics of potato that would make it best for frying? It doesn't go black when you fry it. Wow. Yeah. Wow, fascinating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a... It's, uh, Look, the, the cool thing about this is that even the chef, in a lot of cases, has no idea what that potato is. Right? He knows that he needs that potato, but where do you find it? What's it called? He has no clue, or she. Yeah, of course. And, and they're probably under certain instructions from the business owner, the restaurant, to uh, not even be resourceful to figure out, yeah. you know, yeah, yeah. Well, he, you I have a budget think, or I don't, I don't know. have the time. Yeah, the time. Right? Exactly, yeah. And then going back to wastage. So imagine how much potato was wasted Trying for to you it. to sample and get to that potato that you need. That's crazy. That's crazy. Wow. Yeah. Um, uh, I want to give a shout out <laughs> for Joe, who's a... An amazing spectator, by the way, and, and yeah. he's filling in all the information, all the blanks whenever we need it. Thank you, Joe. Appreciate it. Uh, yeah. at, at some point, you can just grab your seat and next sit next to uh, Ali and we can have a conversation if you, if you feel like you're in the mood. So no pressure, no pressure. Joe, uh, Joe is leading on, uh, on the sustainability angle as well on top of what, what he does. Okay. Um, and uh, that, that's why you saw me sometimes asking Joe a few questions. So, so let's talk about, actually, good question, sustainability. Um, I, correct me if I'm wrong, but one aspect of it is, of course, reducing energy consumption. Um, that's if you're farming. That's if you're farming, yeah. right? To what extent is ethical sourcing of imported foods part of your agenda or an actual problem that you find yourself dealing with? And I, I'll give an example. I had, a, I had a guest on the show who was called an amazing guy called Matt Tugood. He's the founder of Raw Coffee. Um, which do you know what raw, raw coffee, coffee is? here? Raw coffee here. Yeah, 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 I love that place. It's like the espresso machine downstairs. Everything like um, uh, we took nice. the barista course from there. No way. He's a friend. He came on the show. He became a friend. I've seen him a couple of times since then. And lovely guy, right? Australia, New Zealand, either from New Zealand or Australia. Anyway, he came and he schooled me on coffee. Right. Uh, the whole episode was about coffee. I'm a coffee. I'm, if there's one thing I like more than whiskey, it's coffee in the morning uh, and in the afternoon, <laughs> maybe also in the evening. Um, and so he explained to me that the supply chain for coffee globally is filled with like child exploitation and unethical. Like basically, if it's not price exploitation at the beginning of the value chain, it's child labor in other places. And then there are a lot of solutions. And for example, in his case, like they're very deliberate about sourcing ethically. Um, produced uh, or farmed uh, coffee beans uh, and and that's part of their value proposition at raw coffee but i didn't realize there was so much shit going on in the coffee supply chain so my question to you as part of your sustainability um agenda and i guess a question to joe as well is how much do you guys deal with like unethically sort uh, produced food that has either child labor or other type of exploitation that makes it you think you know we're not going to get that product we don't want to yeah. deal with making money for those who are exploiting kids or it could be other types of uh, unethical uh, means? Um, at, at least locally, the farms we deal with, none of that um, 
is an issue. Um, I don't think uh, anyone here uh, operates that way. Um, we've worked with uh, importers uh, who import from, from various places. Um, I'm not privy to uh, what sort of practices they use, uh, but uh, you know, just, uh, just to make things clear, uh, we are not with uh, any sort of uh, child mistreatment or child uh, abuse or any of the sort. Um, so, uh, I yeah. honestly, I, I have no idea. Yeah, yeah. Um, I was curious to know if it actually happens in the world of uh, vegetable and fruit make, uh, farming. I, I wouldn't know. Yeah. Uh, I hope not. Yeah. Um, and, you know, maybe this is a, is a good thing to look into, actually. Yeah, I, mean, I, was um, I came at it completely with, I haven't, I haven't done any research. I was yeah. just totally thinking uh, one of the questions. But what, what else is on this? That's interesting. I guess um, w once we start uh, importing ourselves and, and dealing with uh, regional and global farms um, ourselves, then... Uh, we probably will come across know, a few yeah. cases, yeah. Uh, well, if we do, then, uh, then you it know... It becomes uh, part of your agenda, yeah. too. Uh, what else is on the sustainability agenda? So uh, energy consumption, what else do you guys feel like you need to always be aware of while you... So, uh, again, energy is, is, is something that the farms have to deal with. Mm -hmm. um, what, we, what we do is on the prevention side, like I mentioned, on, on the regenerative sort, regenerative sort of approach uh, where you compost or you give back to, to farms. Yeah. Um, and, again, trying to source locally as much as you can if price permits um, if use case permits as well we try to push local uh, versus imported um, and that sort of plays into the uh, food miles uh, reduction in food miles uh, you know uh, trying to achieve net zero um, etc um, we're we're lucky enough to have at least uh, 25 percent of our produce uh, sold as local um, which is a testament to how much we try to push local versus the national average. Which is what, 5%? 10%? How much did you say the average? 10%. Uh, 10%. Yeah. So wh whereas on right farm, it's 25%. Yeah. So it's amazing. Uh, yeah. 25% of our produce sold on the platform is. So you've uh, managed local. to, for at least for your customers, to double the amount of uh, local produce as a percentage compared to the national average because yeah. you're doing it, you're picking them out right, you're getting the accessibility part. That's amazing. 100%. Yeah. Yeah. That's incredible. Amazing. Well, good for and you guys. And, and local farms love this, right? Um, yeah. <coughs> the, the, the segment that uh, local farms target is, is uh, retail typically, right? Retail yeah. or wholesale. Now, there, there are uh, positives and negatives to that. Positive is you can offload a lot more uh, stock, mm -hmm. right? So uh, Carrefour would want two tons of tomatoes a day, mm -hmm. right? Um, what they don't have access to are food service outlets, yeah, right, and this is where they come in. Food ser service outlets, because of the nature of that um, product spec requirement, um, you're not going to get, and because of your volume, you're not yeah. going to get competitive pricing as much as retail or wholesale would get, right? Yeah, and that trickles down to the farm. Yeah. So, uh, essentially, they're happy with Right Farm because one, we're creating a new sales channel for them, and two, it's a more profitable sales channel. Yeah, 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 makes sense. Cool. Um, I have two questions outside of the scope of Right Farm, but we can go back to talking about Right Farm if we if we want to. Um, but I want to make sure I get your get your uh, get your opinion on these two things. Let's do it. Uh, a lot of controversy and a lot of debate around vaccines, around big pharma. Um, AstraZeneca is obviously one of those big names, like with up there with Pfizer and others. 
you worked at AstraZeneca. Yeah. Um, Funny enough, no one knew about AstraZeneca until now, man. When I, I used to I say to I worked at AstraZeneca, people were like, what the hell is AstraZeneca? Oh, that's true. Actually, I never really heard about AstraZeneca until yeah, the yeah, vaccine yeah. came out. Because AstraZeneca develops um, uh, drugs for chronic diseases. And unless you have a chronic disease, you don't you're, never gonna, uh, you're never going to know about AstraZeneca. Anyway, their vaccine was the shittiest one too, right? It was the one that had the side, side effects and stuff? or um, uh, So I heard. Yeah. So I heard. Heart, I have, I heart have, issues and stuff. Yeah, I never looked into it, but so I've heard. I, I've heard that people don't want to get the AstraZeneca vaccine, at least in Lebanon. Yeah, no, I think it, so there was the Pfizer, the Johnson & Johnson, and the AstraZeneca. These were the three kind of blue chip uh, then there was uh, the Mod- Chinese Moderna, Moderna as well. But then there was a what was that Chinese Sinopharm? One Sinopharm is a Chinese one. Um, I think AstraZeneca was the one that had the most uh, controversial uh, side effects. Like everything else, you would have like a classic kind of flu side effects with the rest. But with AstraZeneca, I think it had the consistent high uh, number of uh, patients complaining of uh, heart. Uh, I think it was like heart palpitations or stuff like that, basically. Yeah. But my question is. Yeah. To the extent that you were able, I don't know, I mean, at the time you were still earlier in your career, based out of Dubai, yeah. right? So did you have, I mean, let's say seven, eight years later, here you are. Yeah. A lot of debate about big pharma, exploiting consumers, uh, yeah. the whole vaccine debate and all of that. Do you have an opinion on this topic, given that you, are, you experienced COVID as yeah. an individual, but you also have experienced working in big pharma and may have seen like what it is to run a business on the inside do you have like have you been pulled into conversations to chime in on this topic i haven't uh first time for everything yeah (laughs) my personal take yes the big pharma is or let's call it pharma let's not call it big pharma because there's a negative uh, connotation to that pharma in general um is a good thing right um, if it wasn't for pharmaceuticals, a lot of people wouldn't have an extended life, sure. right? And a lot of people would, would pass away. Um, in my opinion, what, what, what the issue is, is that the system is rigged, Yeah. right? Um, that sort of um, profit-seeking um, agenda or mandate that, that a company has uh, transpires into a, a, a sort of a, a negative... Uh, route that you can take so it's not that um you know pharmaceutical companies are evil it's capitalism it's it's it's, call it whatever you want it's that um uh, quest for profit Mm, yeah that that um that makes the system sort of rigged right and doctors are uh, are in that system too so Mm. um it's it's not just uh pharma they're the ones writing prescriptions for five dollars xanax boxes Right. I mean, you think about like. Uh, sorry to interrupt you. See but what's going on with the opiate crisis in, uh, in the U.S. and Canada. And I mentioned it as well on my podcast. Uh, I think a couple of episodes ago, I myself have dabbled around with opioids for a while, um, and uh, they're cheap. They're five ten dollars a box, and yeah. that will keep you high for ten for a month, yeah. and that's only five ten dollars. So who the hell is getting who's who's getting paid, uh, or how how are they making money? I mean, it must be all the like the the kind of partnerships that go on with the doctors to yeah. prescribe them and. And the lifetime value that they capture when you get a patient to get hooked on opioids, that's, uh, what is it, $200 a year for the rest of their lives for for their addicts, right? Man, look at... uh, Fortunately, that's way behind me now, but you know. That's good to hear. Yeah. Uh, Three shoulder surgeries, by the way. So, like, I kind of got baited into it. Is that why you... Well, it was a combination of, like, knowing that they existed, they were fun. Um, Also, having been 
prescribed them. Uh, I had three shoulder surgeries. First one. Where did you get them prescribed? Believe it or not, it told well the prescription. W- here, my, I mean. No, I'll tell, I'll tell I'll tell you the story. So initially, uh, first time I've ever had any opioids was in Lebanon. Like we're all having f- partying, having fun. You get some tramal, whatever the hell you know is available. No, no, it's a true story, right? Never had an opioid before. Then you realize, okay, that shit is fun. And then you know. Years go by, you never try it again. And then you start having joint injuries. I had a shoulder injury and so on. And I was in the US. I mean, um, it's amazing to real to see how hard it is to get prescribed opioids or to even get them if you want to in a place like Dubai. It's not easy. Even if you have an injury, they won't prescribe it without, you know, checking a million times and they prescribe it by the pill. Like but they're very careful. In the US, I lived in San Francisco, I lived in New York. They'll give you this shit. They give you 90 pills on demand. You don't even have to have a problem. You just go to a doctor and be like, I want some oxy. Yeah. Yeah. And he'll give you 90 pills. And then it's like, it's it's, it's heroin in a pill, basically, right? So so basically, unfortunately for for those of us who didn't, I mean, me included, you know, got there, enjoyed it, got out of it. Um, But I can see how a lot of people can get hooked on it forever and live on it. And then it becomes just part of their lifestyle. And they pay 10 bucks a week for the rest of their lives because they go through a box a week now instead of a box every three months, right? Um, That's that's crazy. Um, Is Again, going back, is there a use case for it? Yes. Yeah. Is there an alternative for it? Yes. Sure, yeah. Right? Um, But it's just that the the system is is rigged. Um, Look at... uh, so just from an insider perspective with, with AstraZeneca, um, genuinely, there are scientists working day and night on trying to um, develop medication that could cure cancer, uh, that could help extend your life if you have a chronic disease, uh, that can help improve your life if you have a chronic disease. Um, so it's, it's, uh, it's conflicting Right. Um, so when the whole vaccine debate came up, did you feel like you were vaccines is a different story, and uh, vaccines is a, uh, I mean, uh, you know, all medication needs testing. Right. Right. Uh, and anything you ingest has a side effect. Yeah. Right. Even food. Sure. Right. You can get uh, whatever. Not to go into the details, but you you know you can have problems just uh, based on what you ate. Sure. So. Keep in mind that anything you put in your mouth into your system is going to have a side effect. It could be positive, it could be negative, it could be both. Gluten or whatever it is, right? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So uh, without testing, you're not going to know what those side effects are. Yeah. Um, and and that's, that's the whole story about the, the vaccines. Yeah, well, if uh, aside of the side effects, I think a lot of people uh, didn't want to get vaccined altogether. Uh, we hear about uh, the tennis player. Djokovic? Yeah. yeah. Right? Well, he got into I'm sure I don't know how much uh, it was. Australia. He couldn't get into Australia. Right, because he didn't want to get vaccinated. And, yeah. and a lot of like people that weren't necessarily uh, uh, flat earthers or whatever, didn't want to get vaccinated. And actually, if it was up to me personally, I wouldn't have wanted to get vaccinated. For this particular virus, I would have liked to try to like ride it out and get immune. Um, but it became divisive. It became like, uh, you're stupid if you don't take a vaccine. You're not not uh, only that, yeah. uh, your life became more difficult if you didn't uh, get <coughs> vaccinated. You well, that's travel. why I, took I had to take the vaccine and I, yeah. I didn't resist for a bit because I had to practically go on with my life. And I didn't have yeah. a problem, doubt like I wasn't doubtful about Pfizer or their intentions. But if it was up to me, I just wouldn't want to inject myself with anything, actually. Um, so Again, it's, it's not that there is one... Uh, 
um, let's say the CEO of Pfizer, right? You know, it's not like he's sitting down uh, in his evil chair on his evil table, saying how how am I gonna, you know, uh, screw up uh, humanity, right? Yeah. I don't think it's it's like that. Personal opinion. Yeah. Right. Um, there's a. I disease. agree with you on that. Yeah. There's uh, uh, there's a work that's being done on getting a treatment for that disease. If going back to the system, if the system accepts, I'm gonna sell this product, right? Yeah. Is the intention good? Maybe. Yeah. Is it bad? Maybe. As they say, the path to hell is paved with good intentions, right? And actually, this brings me back to uh, uh, not br- not brings me back, but it's a good segue to consulting, management consulting, because you've done a couple of years at PwC, right? Yeah. I've done six years at Kearney Delta Partners. I've experienced what it is to work in a high value professional environment. Yeah. where the pay is good, the training is great, um, the impact is also amazing. But a lot of times you find yourself like any other corporate industry, like law and banking and consulting, selling your soul to the devil. Um, not necessarily setting, as you said, you know, deliberately planning a negative outcome, but in many ways making running things, business operations in such a way that ultimately benefits the stakeholders, the buyers of the project, the ones who get the paycheck at the end of the day, um, this is not a specific, I, mean, I still operate in the consulting space. I have a company that is fortunately very successful in the management consulting space, in the gig economy for consulting space. So I'm very proud of the company and the industry. If I ever have a kid, I'll put them in consulting as well. Um, nothing comes close, to, I think, in my opinion. To start off their career. To start off your career, 100%. Yeah. So I have a, th- a bunch of questions to ask you, but... Um, my wife is a consultant. Which company? Strategy. Yeah, nice. Yeah. Uh, well, n- n- nice. What's her name? <laughs> Uh, Crystal, Crystal Abunader. I think we may have exchanged a few emails because we do we staff for strategy. Really? And, yeah, they're one of our clients, basically. Okay, I'm gonna ask her. Yeah. yeah. Um, no. Yeah. Uh, but so so nice, but not nice. Yeah, it's a love hate relationship, right? So so like everything else in the capital in in the world of capitalism, you sell your soul to the devil. Whether you're in big pharma, whether you're in social media, whether you're in Apple, Facebook, uh, in, in uh, again in management consulting, I find myself a lot of times at a deep uh, individual level, battling with a slide that I had to create that I found to be uh, incongruent with my values or um, even with the outcome of my analysis because that's not what the customer is paying for. Like, you know, like, so there's a lot of times where like, and it's just part of the problem of capitalism is that any industry you're in, even in law, where the biggest liars are ever found lying are lawyers like who found the great perfectly articulated lie to help their clients you know in banking you have a different beast to deal with yeah. consulting same thing and pharma same thing so there is no doubt that there is a lot of contaminated aspects of these industries um, but management consulting is one of those industries that actually really tries to be impactful by at its core and it is impactful in many many ways despite the byproduct or the collateral damage that it causes along the way you have actually worked at PwC. So my, my question to you is, um, to what extent do you attribute the skills and the success that you have at this point in your career to having started off as a consultant um, versus how much it cost you in terms of work-life balance, emotional toll, and everything else? Uh, look, the, the uh, I, I owe where I am now to all my previous experiences, both personal and professional. So... Um, I owe a, a, a lot of where I am now because of PwC, because of Kareem, because of uh, every company I've worked for. Um, 
I think the major difference between how much effort I put in now, which is exactly the same, if not more, if not a bit less, I don't know, uh, from now versus um, PwC is that now I'm doing something and seeing it through to the end. Right? Right, yeah. With consulting, you're not. You hand over the PowerPoint presentation and out of the door you go. That's the reason why I left. Right. I have no idea what I worked on so hard for a few months was even executed. What was the result? Um, nothing. No clue. That takes Sometimes a lot of you do. Yeah. But but, but mostly you don't. Sometimes, it, but that takes a lot of self-awareness and uh, I would say enlightenment at a young age, especially when you're getting paid. I mean, at PwC, you probably weren't getting paid much anyway. Not as much as uh, Kearney or yeah. Wyman. I mean, I, yeah, but like they, you know, when you do work at Strategyand or Kearney or BCG, you get paid a lot of money to, yeah. to not to, you know, kind of to just kick the can on these kind of things. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, I don't know what made me think that way. Uh, but yeah. I realized, man, why am I putting all this effort if I don't even know if... Uh, yeah. What if I'm not doing anything right? Yeah. Right? 100%. What if they're just taking it and just chucking it in the drawer and that's that. Oh, we wasted some money on uh, on Eli's uh, bullshit uh, strategy, right? It continues to be the case. A lot of times, uh, most more often than not, the work that's done by consultants is actually very valuable. It's intended to be impactful. You could argue that the consultants are just bullshitting the clients. You could, I would say, in many cases, the clients aren't able to receive the service of consulting and what's coming, what they could make out of consultants because they themselves are disorganized. They have their own bureaucracies, and consultants simply plug into that, you know, that setup, that that structure, and so you know they'll they'll get paid. They're happy to get paid. They'll tell you, look, this is useless if you don't do this, this, and that. And as long as the client still does not operate in a way that benefits them uh, ultimately they're going to end up paying a lot of money for no impact consultants are going to end up walking out as you did feeling like they haven't caused any impact and the consulting firms make money but like that's they would have made money anyway it's just like i'm sure everybody would have liked a positive impact implementation and that continues to be a challenge in this part of the world um let me say one thing that uh that is amazing about consulting and, and with an example so my wife um, has a PhD in physics. Um, she's a researcher or was a researcher, lecturer. Um, and she decided to make that switch to, to consulting. And I witnessed the transformation, mm-hmm. right? Um, she's a, a totally different um, beast when it comes to business now, right? Um, and it's, it's super impactful when you're not a business person, right? You're a scientist, you're whatever, engineer, uh, and you get that exposure on the business side via consulting, yeah, right? So I can strike a conversation with my wife about Right Farm, about anything, and she has a lot of value to add, yeah, right? Um, and, and that's the beauty of, of consulting, in my opinion. Um, yeah, and I bet you sitting with investors, raising money, uh, presenting a, you know, a pitch deck about Right Farm, May have a lot to do with Kareem and and even AstraZeneca, but but that foundation you built at PwC is and dis- yeah. is priceless. And and uh, I w- like I said, if I ever have a child uh, who is uh, he or she would be at the cusp of their career, and if consulting is what it is today, I would hands down encourage them to do consulting for a few years. Um, what I don't would what I wouldn't want to see is um, my child or anybody else for that matter staying in consulting longer than they would like to because it becomes their comfort zone and yeah. it hijacks their um, 
it becomes it's very sticky it's very sticky and a lot of people i know friends a lot a lot of the, a lot of the people i know are friends and ex-colleagues who every time i see them like man i can't wait to get out like dude get out what do you what you, you yeah. said that to me three years ago why yeah. aren't you getting out until i make principal yeah until yeah, i yeah. make part like why because why because your market value goes up it doesn't i'm in recruitment i understand your market value is as high as it could get for the four years you already spent at fucking mckinsey get the fuck out if you are unhappy yeah if you want to become partner Go yeah, for it. By all means, uh, go for it, right? Like it. Of yeah. course. And it's, it's it's admirable and it's not easy. But if you don't want to make partner because you don't want to become partner, there's no point to wait to become a principal or partner. Leave, Get, leave. when there's an opportunity to leave. No, but right? the thing is about, you're not, it's also about like taking the chances to, to recognize that your market value is extremely high as somebody who worked for four or five years or three, four years at BCG or Bain and company or Kearney. The opportunity is not even going to come to you. I mean, don't like... We're not saying leave and then look for an opportunity, even though that's not entirely yeah, off, yeah, off yeah. the shelf either. No, th- that could be an opportunity, right? The problem is in consulting, you don't have capacity to even look around. You're, yeah. you're yeah, day yeah, in, day yeah. out in the office or traveling. How are you going to find an opportunity? Is it going to just like land on your lap? I mean, maybe, but that most of, more often than not, you need to actually have the capacity to think about what you want, who you are as a person. Yeah. Time is for passing by real quick. But so again, it's the system that's rigged, right? Yeah. Like, do you need to work as a consultant uh, till 1 a.m., 2 a.m. every night? You, you don't. don't. You it's don't. the you system really don't. that's rigged. And that's the beauty of the gig economy of consulting, which is where I'm operating. Please tell me about it. Yeah, so it's a lot of like replacing classical consulting the way that it exists today with a bunch of freelancers, like potentially yourself. I did uh, about five or six years. I actually freelanced myself for a while. So the short version of what I'm talking about is fixed-term, short-term consulting Delivered by freelancers. Got it. So directly like a freelance clients. marketplace. Yeah, for, it's, it's for almost like Upwork yeah. for yeah. high-value consultants. Amazing. Uh, those who make two hundred thousand with work-life balance. With 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 much more than that, because it's it's basically. Them, uh, I'm actually about to make an episode on this whole topic. Uh, four years later in my business, but basically, if you make two hundred thousand dollars a year doing uh, as an associate in uh, as a as an associate at BCG or McKinsey or one of the top consulting firms approximately yeah. i don't know what the numbers are exactly yeah. like different firms pay different amounts but let's say $200,000 a year as a full-time consultant you probably get medical insurance for a few thousand dollars a year you get a two months off um, you get uh, actually these pretty much these are the benefits a bonus end of year right yeah. if you if you have these credentials to be an associate at one of those top consulting firms you could make half a million dollars a year yeah, that's more than twice your annual salary as a freelancer in today's market, which is extremely high demand for, especially in Saudi and the UAE. So you can have basically the same salary you would make if you were full time employed, but have half a year off. Can you just think about what it means to have half a year that's off? That's amazing. If you can have a half a year off, you can discover yourself, hobbies, start a company, maybe do some volunteering work, perhaps visit more countries. Become a new human being, which you would never be able to do because you're either working hard or playing hard. That's so cool. Right. And, and so we're starting to see the trend. Well, we saw, we saw it obviously four years ago and, and now it's speaking. And I just think like I would love to encourage more and more people who are miserable, who don't want to stay in consulting or any, yeah. an, any, any other high value job that's extremely demanding for them. But still have that skill set that they can utilize. Yeah. And, 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 and you know what? Like, I, like my ex-girlfriend, one of my very good friends who now bought a farm in Portugal, now just freelances for a few months a year as a consultant, picks up a very nice paycheck. Can I know what your platform is called? Uh, QO Collective. QO Collective. Yeah. Um, the logo is downstairs. But basically, it's uh, an executive search firm. Uh, we, we, well, we call it a referral recruitment network because it's very deliberate about referrals. Yeah. Um, but we focus a lot on the freelance consulting space. Um, 
which also includes other high value professional services. So not just consulting, but for the most part consulting. And we also place like full-time C-suite uh, roles, like uh, CEOs and adjacent. Yeah. But it's amazing to see a lot of people feel free, uh, get into financial literacy, uh, venture out into startups, get into hobbies and then have their time. And obviously it's, it's easy for us, for those people and for us to say it because these are the creme de la creme and the top of the pyramid of the you know professional services. But the truth is the, c- the case is the same, relatively speaking. Yeah. For the other jobs that are mid-level jobs, if you're a UX designer, if you're a software developer, a freelancer who has enough work, he or she, sh- would ha- would make more money uh, charging by the hour or by the day if they can keep a, s- a long enough stream of jobs and demand coming to them and ha- and double their free time and become yeah. more human, you know? Yeah. So so that's why, I mean, I'm excited about the space. Um, but That's awesome. Um, coming from someone who experienced that and also is is uh, experiencing that uh, through my wife um i i think that's an awesome uh, initiative to be honest um yeah uh, I, unfortunately i see my wife on the weekends right mm. um, yeah and uh, i feel bad as well for her uh, that she can't pick up a hobby during the week and uh you know, ends up uh, trying to make up for sleep on, on the weekend. Absolutely. Um, you have any kids? No. Okay. No, we... That's even tougher then, you know. You know? Well, we can't. Yeah. Uh, I, uh, I don't have time and uh, she doesn't have time. Yeah. And if, if you do have a, find yourself with a kid, it, it gets really tough, right? Like I've seen uh, family, like let's say uh, a male or female consultant in consulting, have a family and uh, especially when it comes with kids it's not easy man it's already yeah. hard as it is as you're saying you know yeah. but it's uh it's kind of part of what you you know that's what i'm saying it's kind of a little bit of the cost benefit of how much do you want to give away in order to gain some skills and then move on with your life versus do you get trapped into this comfort zone but yeah. i hope your wife's happy uh, yeah no, no, no just a question on, yeah. on on that do you see this industry sort of uh, shifting towards a uh, work-life balance. Um, I don't even know if it's a regional thing, right? Um, in, 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 in Europe or in Scandinavia, does um, McKinsey or BCG have a crappy work-life balance? or Not as bad as a region. So yeah. you're right. So there it is, is a regional thing. Yeah, and, and so the reason why the region might have it harder is because the customers are not as savvy as those in, the, in Europe and the United States. So... In the sense? In that consultants take on more load doing work in Saudi Arabia than they would if they were to have the same engagement in Europe because in Europe the clients are utilizing the consultants in a different way okay. than they would here. Yeah, yeah, so a very kind of uh, rudimentary example is that your average client in Saudi Arabia might start off with a scope. He, they didn't think of it properly. But now that you're delivering the project, you're pulled into all these different things. And yeah. because the way that's the way the business goes here, you end up doing work that's outside of your scope because the client will not hire you again or they won't even pay your bill for yeah. your project. So before you know it, you know, the partner is all confused and he or she is cascading that down to their team. It's a system. It's a system from the clients. It starts with the client, right? It's, it's almost not, it's almost never because the partners or the principals or the associates are incompetent. Yeah. It's almost because they are a function of, they need to deal with the shit that they're dealing with. No, and if anything, I think they're uh, more than competent, right? They're very competent. Yeah. And, and the shit they deal need, need to deal with is also not a direct relation, a reflection of the clients they're working with. It's also the clients themselves are part of a bureaucratic system. Yeah. 
that has these weird approvals and checks and balances. So, so everybody ends up caught in this tangled up mess, right? Yeah. Uh, whereas in Europe and the US, you know, you, what you pay for is what you get. You can turn down a request from a client because it's not part of your scope. They have much more uh, mature uh, skill sets, uh, both consultants and the clients. So, you know, it's there's it's clear what you're coming to deliver is what you're gonna get. Uh, everybody walks out happy. Here, it's a little bit of like, let's scramble and figure it out. You know. So here's a question. Mm. Um, so we're talking about BCG Bain. Uh, sorry, yeah. we're talking about BCG Bain McKinsey uh, strategy and whatever. Why hasn't any one of these companies um, sort of, why hasn't this clicked and, and, you know, they come and say, hey, we're going to do things differently moving forward, right? We're going to pioneer this sort of new age of, of management consulting. Is it purely because they're probably going to get the short end of the stick on yeah, revenue? They won't get they won't get business. It's like a lot of those tenders and RFPs are awarded to companies because the client likes the partner and his approach or her approach and and the flexibility that they look like they're going to exhibit. And con- like, you know, one of the firms, actually, it happens to be one of the big four uh, firms. One of the reasons why they get hired a lot, despite the fact that they're not the best. They're it, willing to do anything. No, it's because they are willing to wait a year to get paid. Okay. Or sometimes more than that. So yeah. they have the cash yeah. to pay their employees. And, and, and you know, because big another big challenge, for example, is, is getting paid on time. Like, you know, your payment terms may say you get paid this amount at the beginning and then mid-project and then a deliverable. But most clients will not deliver on any of these payment terms on time. Like th- you're always off by two, three months at least. Yeah. So some of those consulting firms have had an, an advantage over the others in that they w- win projects because they agree with the client either paid. officially or not is that, look, you don't have to pay this year, you can pay next year. Flexible payment terms. Flexible payment terms, right? Not because our strategy <laughs> is better, it's because we are willing to wait a little bit more and we have the cash to pay our employees. So it's, it's one- it's That's one of our value uh, props. The micro microfinancing, right? <laughs> Well, I don't know if you've seen the video that we have. The one that you did, uh, right? It's a little yeah, bit quir- quirky with the... Uh, yeah. Yeah, no, I saw it. Mixed yeah. feelings about it. Joe likes it. I, uh, uh, yeah. It's cool. It's funky. It, it is. Yeah, it yeah, is. Yeah. Um, but yeah, well, there's Mazen popping out, um, telling, reminding you that we have flexible payment terms. Yeah, so but I, I'd imagine, I mean, I, I, you mentioned it earlier and I was wondering how many, how many uh, of your customers need uh, financing, like even at, at, on a short-term basis? Um, this is an insight we, we we weren't expecting. So a lot of um, SME restaurants prefer to pay in cash. So that's, that's one thing that uh, we weren't expecting. But then everyone else expects some sort of uh, payment facility. Right. Um, and it's, an, it's a function of the industry. That's yeah. the industry norm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, we have a mixed bag. Some people pay in cash. Um, others uh, have 30-day, 60-day. Uh, buy now, pay later is a big theme. Huh? Yeah, so so essentially this is w- what it is, right? Uh, credit facilities, payment, uh, f- flexible payment terms, buy now, pay later, it, it's essentially the same thing. Yeah, 100%. Dude, this was awesome. And I, don't, I yeah. want to be mindful of people's time. It is, it's been an hour and a half. Um, before we wrap up, I want to make sure that uh, anybody listening and watching, uh, first of all, is there anything else that we should cover that we haven't covered? Uh, I want to make sure that uh, anything else that you would like us to talk about that I have perhaps overlooked. Per- uh, no, sure. not really. I, I don't know. Uh, what type of music do you listen to? <laughs> you 
Well, uh, as I mean, because it has evolved over the years, but today, uh, like Deep House, very low and mellow Deep House. Uh, okay. I went to Burning Man about four years ago. Okay. Three years ago. How I was it? Proposed to Georgia there. No way. Life changing experience. Yeah. Nice. I've done my share of partying around the world and stuff, but Burning Man is on. Actually, it's not even like if you try to go to Burning Man, there, you have to fill up a survey online that says you understand this is not a party. Yeah. And then that's only... It's on an experience, I guess. Y- no, and you have to actually sign like a waiver, like not a waiver, like a survey that says, I understand this is not a rave, even though it's like the mother of all raves, you know? But like what they're trying to, you know, they're trying to position themselves that it's not. And they do a very good job at actually not being that. But of course, you go there, it's a lot of sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Sure. Um, but yeah, a lot of this kind of oriental house, deep house music, but why, curious to know nice. what you're asking. No, it just <laughs> popped just up in my mind. Uh, I don't yeah. know. Because okay, there's uh, that in the background. Oh, so. I used to be a guitarist. Uh, I still play the guitar, but not, a, not anymore. So I used to have a rock band uh, in high school and university. No way. Yeah, I was the guy in like Beirut in the apartment, like, you know, remixing Backstreet Boys into Arabic uh, beats and playing the guitar and like wow. people singing along. Um, I had is a band that guitar or bass? No, just like an acoustic guitar. Okay. Yeah. I had a proper band in high school. Yeah. And then over the Man, years... Lebanon was... Um, when we were there, uh, it was a crazy, crazy scene back then. Yeah. Um, not, not only uh, with what was going on politically... Right. Uh, yeah. And with everything, but also the, the party scene was uh, pretty interesting. Yeah. It was, it was a weird time. It was... A, I, I don't think there is a, a, a similar time uh, that... that uh, I never got into techno and trance until I went to Beirut, basically, because I was still listening to like metal and rap. So I was doing a lot of like Tupac, Biggie, you know, the whole uh, G-Funk era was my high school days. Then I go to Lebanon and then I go to Basement and BO and I'm suddenly listening to Tiesto and Armin Van Buren and uh, Sasha and Digweed and all those guys. That was my first rave, Armin Van Buren. In like Forum de Beirut? Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Followed by BO right next door. That was... uh that yeah. was interesting. Joe, were you there? Yeah. That was crazy. They were the best, though. That was crazy. So it it's, all it's, started it's there. It's interesting. Uh, maybe my take on, on the Lebanon experience, because I'm, I'm from the south in Lebanon, so mountain area in, in the south. The Balbak or? Uh, no. So, so uh, the southern uh, Mount Lebanon part, an area called Jizin. Oh, of course. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know it? Yeah, I know Jizin. Really? Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah. I used to travel a lot. Uh, I mean, have you I been there? I don't. I can't remember if I did, but you know, I, I don't know why in my head the route back to Jordan. I can't remember if it goes through Jazin or not because I would drive sometimes. Uh, get in a no, car. It shouldn't. Yeah, yeah. But I know f- I'm familiar with Jazin okay. geographically. I mean, nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, there's a, there's a town in Jazin called Kassin, which is where my uh, my mom is from, uh, that got voted uh, the best village in the world or whatever. It's a beautiful, beautiful village. Like. Picture perfect, uh-huh. right? Uh, you have the biggest pine uh, forest in the region there. You're talking about massive land, just pine trees after pine trees. Um, and so that area was occupied um, by the southern Lebanese army, uh, which is a, like a proxy army uh, for Israel. Right. Uh, um, and so when we were kids, we used to... Um, Go to go to Beirut, uh, fly to Beirut, and then go to Jazin, and it was um, it was like a journey because you'd have to cross the uh, Lebanese army checkpoint, yeah. and then uh, 
uh, a few hundred meters after that, you have a southern Lebanese army checkpoint. Right. Um, and you couldn't take your cell phone. Uh, so I remember my mom and my aunts used to hide their cell phones um, in their uh, uh, yeah in their private uh, uh, areas. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was crazy, man. Crazy, crazy stuff. Oh my god. Um, and it's like a, a, a it's like a Joker experience, right? right? You never know what you're gonna get. Yeah. Right. If the guy's pissed off. Yeah. And he's he's a guy from your your hometown, yeah, right? He's so he's a distant cousin. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Not distant cousin, <laughs> but uh, a neighbor. So yeah, yeah, exactly. Nasaib. So uh, y- and and you don't know what's gonna happen. Right? Yeah. Um, but what I was trying to say is is you 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 get so when I was growing up, I I got exposed to that type of thing, right? Yeah. And then uh, a few summers as well, when I was a teenager, we'd have um, we'd have these fights between. Uh, those guys and and, and, and the others uh, course, side, yeah. right? Um, and you'd witness things like uh, artillery uh, uh, being shot, yeah, uh, heavy uh, machine guns. In Jordan, uh, you get some of those too. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. And as a kid, you grow. First time you experience that, it's like uh, shit. I'm shitting my pants, right? Yeah, as it's intimidating. Kid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then. You know, couple that with with some uh, uh, fire, uh, not not fire, uh, f- fighter jet uh, bombings in, in in Beirut when they t- used to target the electricity uh, uh, stations and power plants, um, and and the sort of that sticks with you. And then 2003 to 2007, which is when I was in Lebanon, when right. you were there, yes, um, you had to go through. Uh, the Hariri assassination right. had to go through the multiple other assassinations or attempted assassinations. Yes, uh, and I remember we used to wait for. This is so sad, man. You used to wait for that next attempt, uh, bombing or yeah. whatever, so that you can go out, yeah. right? Because right after, after that, it, you can go out, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, oh my God, you're taking me back into these days. My entire apartment yeah, yeah, shook yeah. with the Hariri bombing. Right? Yeah. Uh, so I was with my. Uh, one of my best friends at at at, at the apartment uh, when when that happened, and uh, man, looking back, it's it's so crazy because what I thought, given my past experience with with these type of things, it was that this was a fighter jet yeah. uh, that broke the sound barrier. Yeah, it sounded uh, like that. And we were thinking, man, why the hell did the glass break? Like, was yeah. it that um, was it that low? Yeah. Right. So we're trying to analyze, like, what was the situ- situation with the fighter jet? Was yeah. it low? Like, this doesn't usually happen. Usually, you get a thud. Yeah. Um, this was different. Yeah. So my, my mom called. She's like, fucking freaking out. Just a bit. Yeah. Thank you. All right. Uh, she's she's freaking out. Where are you? Where are you? Um, bawling on on the phone. Yeah. Uh, and I'm like, I'm at home. What's going on? And she's like, you d- you didn't hear? You didn't hear? I'm like, no, I didn't hear anything. She's like, uh, this, this, this that happened. And I'm like, oh, no shit. That explains this uh, whole ruckus that's uh, right. you know, glass breaking in, in the building. Because where we were, I don't know where you were living. Hamra. You were living in Hamra. Okay, yeah. me too. Yeah. So we were like, what, 400 meters away? Yeah. 300 meters away? Yeah, I was like literally at a place called New Perfect Homes, which is at the end of Hamra, literally. W- Next w- to Versailles Hotel. No way. Yeah. So basically. We were like, a, a, what, a street away? You were uh, me, me and you. You were in Beirut Homes, Antilulu's uh, road. Next or? to Antilulu. Oh, uh, you were. You were in Pearl. No, no, I was in uh, Shamas. 
I was in Haddad. Okay, so I lived in Shamas, Antilu. I did. No, uh, wait. You were Auntie Lulu? No, no, sorry. I did not. I did Pearl, which is in front of Auntie Lulu, right on the corner. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I know Pearl. I, uh, Next to my friend homes. used to live there. Yeah, right. Yeah. And I did Shamas. So they were both on the same side of that road. Yeah. Auntie Lulu was cool. Auntie Lulu was cool. Yeah. And Beirut, home, so especially Auntie at the top. Yeah. I had two friends yeah. uh, that rented um, both sides yeah. of, of the top floor with the pool. Yeah, that was pretty dope. Man. But I remember it was like for those of so for those who were privileged enough to get it because it was check, expensive. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, yeah. <laughs> I had to find a way to rent back it six hundred dollars. Yeah, yeah. Back then, uh, <laughs> my 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 parents couldn't afford that. Yeah, same, um, same here. But interesting. So, so I'm telling you how how crazy and how accustomed you get to that uh, life, and I and I'm very I feel very lucky that I got to experience that yeah. because I gained so much um so much of my personality i owe to those experiences yeah um, i don't know if you feel the same 100% yeah yeah so um like doing whatever it takes <coughs> is, is is something i i uh i do because because of those experiences i feel um not worrying about um random stuff that people worry about because I know that you could be gone any second is, is, is something um, I learned from that. Um, not worrying about death. Yeah. Right? Is, is something I've... Cause it's common and you see it and it becomes almost... You uh, become accustomed to it. You become desensitized about yeah. it too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 But, but in a positive way. I'm not talking about the negative side of things, right? Yeah. Um, like, take it this way. What's the worst that could happen? Yeah. Right? Yeah. I, I I die in an instant. So what? Um, yeah. Okay. This is amazing about Lebanese people. This resilience, you know, uh, we have a lot of in common between us Jordanians and Lebanese and Arabs in general. But something specific about the Lebanese is very admirable. As somebody who grew up in Lebanon, like uh, went to university in Lebanon, who has cousins who are Lebanese, because uh, my aunt married a Lebanese. So I'm very. I, I feel like part of me is almost a, at least a quarter, if not a third. Lebanese and it's incredible how much resilience uh, you guys have having gone through all this political shit now the financial stuff and somehow every Lebanese person I know resourceful hustler um, uh, figures this shit out he or she no matter where they are I, I, I find the skill to be um, really commendable it's almost like a survival skill and uh of course, unfortunately, it comes with, you know, but like it's it's come it sort of comes in the hand in hand with like I gotta figure I gotta sort my shit out me and my family and you know in many cases that naturally would lead to a lot of the corrupt corruption that happens and so on. But you gotta you know just you know taking a step back, how many other like in general, it's, it's hard for people not to crack under pressure under war, under rockets around you, under inflation, under all that stuff, and yeah. still find a way to have fun with life, enjoy your time, and, and, and accept that this is just like life is not easy. It's almost like, um, what is this a Greek uh, term I'm looking for, which is like a, a stoic, like accepting life as torture and just making the best out of it, right? Almost like, a, and it's, it's very admirable, right? Again, it comes with its shortcomings, but yeah. you can't deny that it's actually uh, like, you know, I, I would be proud of my kids or brothers or sisters or friends if they have this skill of resilience and survival against all odds. Yeah. And that's one of the things I say I, I've learned in Lebanon as well. You're right. Yeah. yeah. 
man, I owe, I owe so much to those four years. 100%. I, I really do. Um, I don't know if you've spoken to anyone that's witnessed the civil war in Lebanon. I'm like my cousins. Yeah. Okay. And my aunt. Yeah. yeah. So I, I, I they have bullets in their kitchen still until today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 I, I've spoken to my parents. About Ash, it. Yani. Yeah. They were living. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, man, what they what they've seen. Yeah. What they've witnessed. Is yeah. Uh, but the cold cuts and the G and B and uh, you know playing cards, you know, despite it all, like you know, I I remember how they were. It was very incongruent the fact that they were going through war. And at the same time, Sahar uh, you know what I mean? Like, you know, they're having whiskey, yeah. they're having cold cuts under rockets. Yeah. And, and and so what they went through is shit, but then really what's amazing is how they were living life despite it all. Like, even now, man, with all the inflation that's going on, all the shit, people are telling me Lebanon is the best time to go to Lebanon is now. Like, h- how are people... Well, because you, uh, you have fresh dollars. But even people there, it doesn't look like it's a depressing place. You go, like, somehow, something about Lebanon today, I don't know when's the last time, I haven't been to Lebanon in ages, but... Um, Apparently, Lebanon today, if you go there, even with money and fresh dollars, yeah, I agree with you. But, like, apparently, the people in Lebanon are alive and well. Like, they're fine. They're yeah. not, this is not like you would think shit would be much, much worse. And uh, It's, it's uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's uh, baffling. Uh, I'm baffled, at least. Um, is it the diaspora? Is it all the diaspora? I have no clue. It might be the diaspora. Um, it might be that people had money tucked in under the mattress gotta be right I, mean. I have no clue so another thing i learned in egypt is that it's a um, it's a cash market right um and the <coughs> reason being is that uh, the 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 mass population doesn't believe that their money is safe unless it's with them in their house right wow yeah so it's it's, it's sort of like a mentality right so yeah. i'm not gonna give anyone my money i'm gonna yeah. put it in my house wow. right it doesn't matter if it's a bank it's a person doesn't matter my yeah money is in my house Haram. Little, um, little did they know the inflation and the fiat system will uh, they're not uh, immune from it because it'll, it'll get them eventually if the currency gets devalued yeah but yeah no matter where you put your cash you can put it up your ass and you'll still it'll <laughs> still be worthless no but i mean you know what i mean like like it's it's there's no protection you can put it in a bank and yeah. they'll take your dollars away yeah. you can put your money under your pillow and then they'll inflate it well the difference is that uh, at least you have that money oh yeah yeah right yeah the it's, bank it's worth half as much as it taking that money that's right oh yeah that's the worst as somebody who's a big uh crypto fan as you can see bitcoin specifically um have I love you invested I, am I invested? Am I bo- I'm balls deep, bro. Really? Yeah, yeah. That's cool, man. I don't have any I cash. I, have I, have I only have crypto. I mean, I have cash coming in every month, alhamdulillah. Yeah. So, but I mean, but you, you I just buy crypto every, really? every month. Yeah. I have been since, uh, yeah. But like, I started, I got into 2017. I lost a lot of money trading and like literally gambling away, margin yeah. trading, you know, betting on 1% up down and, yeah. and losing money that would make my, God, God forbid, father have a heart attack or mother yeah. if they hear but so I, I got past that phase as well and now i'm just like huddling and saving and i'm a big fan of yeah uh the bitcoin standard like as exactly what the book title you should i, I encourage everybody to read that book to read that book um and listen the to the bitcoin say, standard yeah the safe dean he has a great podcast that was recently published on lex friedman uh so it's yeah. safe dean uh who is the author of uh the bitcoin standard and the fiat standard okay. the both books um, who shows up on Lex Friedman. So anybody who wants to get just like a head start on Bitcoin and, 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 and even understand Ethereum and others as well, 
that podcast episode that was launched five days ago on Lex Friedman is a great place to start. Um, Do you think it's too late? No, no, no. Okay. Less than one. have a chance? Yeah, and not only do you have a chance, I really, incur- uh, and, uh, you wouldn't be, all my friends and my family, I'm not saying bet the farm like I am, right? I mean, it's not for everybody, but like you should definitely have 10% of your yeah, net worth yeah, yeah. in Bitcoin. I'm not saying buy Solana, buy Cardano. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Bitcoin, maybe Ethereum, right? Because Ethereum is a bet on centralization and uh, privatized, like uh, kind of like the more privatized version. Bitcoin for sure, maybe Ethereum. And then if you want to get a little bit gambly, other stuff, but... Bitcoin and Ethereum for sure, and even then, more Bitcoin than Ethereum, I would say. Okay. Yeah. And it's not too late. Actually, now is the best time. If you buy it today, you're buying... it's slow now. It's half, more than a 60% discount from its all-time high. So yeah, you're okay. bu- you, you should start buying now and keep buying over the next year. It goes up, it goes down. You co- your yeah, dollar yeah, cost yeah. average. Yeah. And then you hold it for 5, 10 years, and uh, yeah, it'll be the best trade of your life or investment, basically. I think so. I mean, okay. I, hope, I hope I'm right. Let's see. Okay, I'm going to look into that. Eli, this has been amazing. Uh, thank you so much for coming. Uh, Joe, thank you for coming as well and being such a trooper. Joe, you've been a do trooper, you man. Come, do you want to just show your face to the camera? No? Are you sure? All right. All right. Well, okay. hopefully next time we get you on the show. Yeah, yeah. you should get Joe and, and talk about He's been a real uh, trooper and, a, and, 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 and filled the blanks in times when we needed it. <laughs> for anybody listening and watching, rightfarm.com. Uh, yes. Great domain, by the way. How the hell did you buy it? How much did you pay for it? We bought it. How much you pay for it? Uh, I don't think it was around for nine ninety nine dollars. Like no, yeah, uh, must have cost you a bit of a yeah, a, a couple of thousand. Yeah, that fair enough. That's totally worth it because it's a great domain. Right Farm, Right uh, so This is the second time I I I hear that. Uh, like yeah. your brand is. Uh, I feel like I know your brand. Yeah. Right. For some reason. The guy. Uh, yeah. 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 It's a yeah. podcast, Vuk. Yeah, 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 uh, yeah. Change officer. He said that he feels like the brand's yeah. been over it. I yeah. haven't heard about it until you told me, but like, I'm happy to hear that. It's, yeah. it's, it's, it's only been And a it's year a long. nice play. Uh, Joe, come on, man. Uh, <laughs> come here and explain. Uh, Find a way to about, carry. About the brand, man. No, look, uh, it's cool because there's an Arabic um, sort of. Uh, I, don't, I don't know what's the word. Uh, too many uh, apple juices. <laughs> Um, <laughs> but but what I'm trying to say is, <laughs> yeah, uh, right farm, right? right, right. Everything starts from the right in Arabic and, ah, and stuff like that. Yeah. So it was deliberate. Uh, like five puns in one, basically. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. But I mean, right farm as a URL, I would imagine as a domain, yani, is not easy to find. So do you want to hear a funny story? Sure. Yeah. Okay. Have we're, we're in, uh, I have all the time. time. Okay. I'm actually not on a rush, by the way. I'm just being mindful of, pe- of the listeners' time. That, uh, okay. but, uh, but well, they can log off if they want. No, yeah, and, and also you'd be surprised. A lot of them do listen into the full thing. This is what they actually want to listen into, right? This is the after. Yeah, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. This so is the fun stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go for it. Um, Rightfarm.com was flagged for pornography. I gotta write a new. Where was it flagged? I gotta write a new list of so questions. W- wait, 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 wait. I gotta think a bunch of questions on the spot. Um, first time it was flagged. Uh, some of our customers and our investor had a um, cucumber. No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. How no. are we gonna get into pornography here? I don't know. <laughs> All right, go on. No, uh, they 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 had the software on their. Um, on their system that was sort of like a, a malware, okay. uh, oh whatever, shit. antivirus uh, security software, uh-huh. right? Um, and 
they got this message on their screen when accessing the the, the platform because that's where you access the platform, right? Yeah. Rightfarm.com and you go to shop.rightfarm.com. Yeah. Is it shop.rightfarm.com? Yeah. So uh, they, they, they reached out and they said, guys, we're getting this uh, flag that we can't access the platform. It says uh, it's been flagged for pornography. Yeah. So I panicked and I went and started calling the, um, the, the company that, um, that these uh, customers and the investor was using, trying to tell them that this is not a p- pornography website. <laughs> we're selling fruits and vegetables. Yeah. Right? And I guess some people would, uh, <laughs> would think of it as, as pornography. Yeah, uh, and, and and then uh, we we got that sorted out with that company. Yeah, uh, but but even until today, I forget the la- just a few weeks ago, someone came in. I think our our CTO Ajami um, came in and told me that uh, someone can't access it because it's it's flagged for pornography. So I don't know what the situation is before we bought the account. Um, it's a very strange name. Yeah, to right call farm. a pornography website. Fascinating. Uh, I hope it wasn't. It was just a mistake. Yeah, but like th- the kind of issues you have to deal with as a it's founder yeah, of a tech company, it's you know, so random. You know, you venture out to fix the supply chain of logistics, and suddenly you're <laughs> fi- dealing with pornography associated. Yeah, I was uh, calling a company in France. Yeah, right. Trying to explain to them that uh, this is not a porn website. Yeah. Uh, offer yeah, them, but offer them some fresh, fresh, fresh apples and but stuff. But uh, but these come. Uh, I mean, now we talk about it and we laugh. Yeah. Right. So. Uh, yeah, it's it's a it's a nice journey. Uh, it's a nice journey. Well, I bet it's the first of many, much more to come. Um, you are at the beginning of your journey. I really wish you all the best. Um, Thank you, yes, I appreciate it. Uh, I, I, it's always inspiring to see uh, people venture out. You know, it takes a lot to take a step in doing anything, um, any sort of transformation, a new job, a new hobby. Starting a company is always admirable. Inshallah, success is the only outcome. But like uh, whatever the outcome is, sure. I think it's 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 commendable that you're doing this. So, um, wish you all the best. And thank you. you. I appreciate it. And same to you, Habibi. I appreciate you, it. You're, you're on that train too. So hundred percent, hundred percent. Yeah, we're in yeah. it together. Uh, the solidarity is, is is alive and well, and we need it. So, um, I wish you all the best. I wish you with the team all the best. For anybody that's listening and watching, rightfarm.com, Eli E L I E space scaf. S-K-A-F on LinkedIn. Reach out if you have any questions, if you'd like to get involved. Um, Thank you so much. Joe, thanks again as well. Thank you, Joe. That's a wrap.